We've been through hell together. We spent four years. Four years! Fighting that virus and then another four fighting each other. It was chaos. But you, you all know what we're up against. I need to speak to Caesar! Oh my god, it's Naked Zero. <laughs> you should post that on there. Put that on apes. Somebody posted in uh, Two True Freaks, uh, inspired by Planet Apes, I'm currently rewatching all five original movies. I just finished up Escape, and I, can I just say, why do all these movies have to end on such a depressing note? Gotta love Victor Newman from Young and the Restless as a villainous scientist. Yes. Mm-hmm. Dr. Otto Hasslein. So what you see here is a man painting a picture of a man painting a picture picture. of a man painting a picture. picture How does that explain time travel? It doesn't explain That explains Salvador Dali. Have you listened to the commentary? Because I totally called him out on that. I'm like, what? What is this? Nothing. It's like Jordy LaForge psycho babble. Or not, not psycho babble, but techno babble. It's like, it doesn't make any sense. What does that have to do with anything? But what are we still missing? The artist himself. So he pulls back and he paints again. <laughs> Stop painting and tell me about time travel. <laughs> oh, I see. <laughs> I just see uh, your picture. <laughs> I, I just shrunk down a window and I see Marilyn Monroe being felt up by Dr. Zayas, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, it's very <laughs> But a secret agent man looking Dr. Zayas, too. <laughs> Back to the bin. God damn. Scott, you recording? Uh, I am, but I never rely on that too awful much. I mean, I'm recording, too. I just want to make sure I got somebody backing up. Come on. Where's the picture? Show me the picture. I'm always backed up. <laughs> you, you pussy. You don't know nothing about being backed up. <laughs> talk to Alvin. Yeah. Talk to me and the cat. <laughs> we'll school you on backed up. Yeah, just just no, Bill. You know, if it were up to me, we would have been giving you that uh, that little sedative. <laughs> <laughs> oh, great, great. It's just a kidney stone. What are you doing, man? Well, it's going to cost you it's going to cost you $2,000 to save your friend. Well, <laughs> euthanasia's. You know. Well, uh, 
I don't know what it's going to cost me. Uh, I finally got the operation date. That's going to be, uh, you know, operation. A Milton Bradley game. Ah! Ah! So they're going to take out the wrenched ankle? Yeah, take out the... No! no oh, I uh, thought he was having the change done. Yeah, that's, that's what I change. thought you were talking about. No. It's about time. Not that yeah, I saw Dog Day afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're going to uh, next Thursday for my birthday. Yay! Happy birthday! They get to they get to shove a laser up my and go blast a stone. But but this time they're doing it for medicinal purposes. This time they're knocking me out, as opposed to the usual. Yeah 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 yeah. Whereas like I usually like a glass rod inserted in my. Yeah sure mm, that's 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 my fetish. Mm-mm. No, it's not. We uh, we're recording too. God. So anyway, Thursday they sedate me and stick me and blast me. They said eight you? Sedate. Oh. Oh. <laughs> oh. I thought they somebody was eating you. Do I, do I have to talk like I'm on Game of Thrones? I have to over enunciate everything. You should talk with your British accent like uh Hello like Tyrion. <laughs> I'm hey, I'm from Jersey. He's from Jersey. You you, you guys are you have more in common than, than we could possibly list. <laughs> Why does he have kidney stones and a cat that gets blocked up periodically? <laughs> so, uh, ready to wrap Lord. up kind of the Apes Month? <sighs> yeah, I'm kind of kind of I'm kind of sad to leave it behind. To be honest, I am with too, you. and I think I don't think I'm totally leaving it behind. Oh no, I'm going to go back and read some more. But I'm just no, no. I mean, I'm talking about even on the show. I think I'm going to occasionally pull one up from oh. my mm-hmm. or from my Marvel. Yeah, I gotcha. Yeah, that's not a bad I, idea. I don't think I'm gonna. I don't think you know. I mean, I'm not gonna inundate the show with Planet of the Apes, but I'm not leaving it totally behind because I think there's some other epi- some other issues that are worth doing. Well, when we get to the episode proper, I want to bring up. Uh, I want to pick your brain, Scott, on the show for. Don't take too much. <laughs> for parallels between what you read with conspiracy versus cataclysm, because yes. Oh, I'm wondering, because I read the whole 12 issues, and actually I read them twice. Like, one was a quick skim through, then I actually sat down and read them, and then I've, I've read 12 so at least. took your d- medicine, don't shoot your whole load before we start the episode. <laughs> <laughs> I took my d- medicine this morning, so I'm tapering off now. <laughs> yeah, you know, then, then we're going to have to wait 20 minutes for you to revitalize. <laughs> <laughs> Seek medical attention if you podcast for more than four hours. Right. <clears throat> Who's bringing us in? Not me. Not me. My God, I guess it's Scott. Aw, damn it! Did you, you have something on mute, dummy? You just a touch <laughs> slow on the drawer on that one. Uh, you, I'm distracted by the internet. Porn. Uh, pretty pictures. <laughs> I was trying to find a new. Uh, a nude? What? A new? Oh. No, a new. I said I was trying to find a new picture to. <laughs> Oh, I can see what kind of recording this is going to be already. Those are the best ones. <laughs> so so you with say... a bang. Excuse me. <laughs> Sorry. I was. I kind of went off the deep end. I. Uh, I kind of lost my shit when I got home because uh, I, I was in pain with my ankle. All day. Oh yeah, I got a new thing. My ankle was killing me all day, and <laughs> every show like, a new ailment. <laughs> I'm like. Wait, watch! Someone out bought a bag of kettle chips. <laughs> like I'm, 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 I'm gonna eat something, damn it, and I'm gonna like it. You want me to bring it in? I want you to bring it in. 
<clears throat> All right, here we go. Where's the lock? Do we have, do we have any idea what uh, what episode this is? No, stop, please. Oh, okay. Episode beep. <laughs> we don't. We, the the numbers go on the episodes. We no longer announce the number though. This is week uh, four of Planet of the Apes month. Yeah, well, I know that. Well, then what are you asking for? All right, here we go. Okay, he's just always needs to. I need help. I need to know my motivation for this episode. <laughs> Monkeys. I'll be, damn it. I'll be in my trailer. <laughs> Perhaps you should try acting, my boy. <laughs> you know right, that story, we... right? Scott Rifen told that one a couple of weeks ago. No, I'm just now getting caught up on their well, show. Re- really quick, really quick story. Uh, when they were filming Marathon Man. Uh, Dustin Hoffman, you know, to try and look like he was being beat up and tortured, like did some sort of like five or ten mile run right before the scene. And Lawrence Olivier looks over to him and says, perhaps you should try acting, my boy. Something, <laughs> something to that effect. Ooh. And, and, and uh, I, I did some research on it after Scott was talking about it. I had heard that story before, but I hadn't heard it in years. And uh, I did a little research on it. And uh, uh, Dustin Hoffman tries to make it sound like it's an apocryphal story. But even when he denies it, he's basically admitting that it's true. Like, if you read through the lines, it's like, yeah, he makes it sound like, yeah, Olivier said that, but he was joking. No, no, no. Olivier said it because you're a d- <laughs> <laughs> Now go put a dress and a wig on. Get out of here. Tootsie. All right, so bring us in. Okay, here bring we go. Bring it on home, baby. <clears throat> Hello, and welcome to Back to the Bins. This is week four, the final week of Planet of the Apes Month. My name is Scott Gardner, and I am joined, as always, by my very good friends, Paul Spataro. How you doing? <laughs> and Dr. Bill Robinson. Planet of the Apes. Oh, I read Planet of the Grapes. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> and they were delicious. Yeah. Kept getting them all over the place. I, I bet you somewhere out there there's probably been some parody of, called Planet of the Grapes. More than likely, don't you think? Somewhere. Really Planet of the Grape Apes. <laughs> Planet of the Grape Apes. <laughs> Step on everybody. Uh, I am very sad that Planet of the Apes month is over. It's like Christmas. I waited so long for it and it's gone already. Oh, uh, it's not gone yet. Almost. We're almost there. We're on the border. We're like on the ledge and somebody's ready to push us off. <laughs> Well, I mean, we still have this episode, and there—I mean, there's still plenty of stuff that I mean, we've really just scratched the surface. So, I mean, I'm thinking if we ever want to do, you know, Apes Month revisited or Apes Month Two or whatever the hell you want to call it, there is still so much stuff that we could do because, uh, I mean, we never really touched on the Power Record stuff. We only briefly mm-hmm. mentioned the Gold Key beneath. Uh, adaptation. We only really just mentioned, really, the the adaptations in Marvel comics. You know, Bill uh, did the final chapter of Conquest, but I mean, there's all that stuff too. So I mean, there's yeah. so much stuff that we could do. I generally Plus, find when the... I scratch the surface, people tell me to, you know, go somewhere else and do that. <laughs> yeah, don't do that in public. <laughs> well, there's also the animated series and the TV series, and right. There's the there's a Tim Burton film. Insert, uh, insert crickets here. Uh, I didn't. I, uh, I didn't hate the movie. It's not like I, I hated didn't either. It. It's just you know the. Come on, what's your beef? What's your ape? Well, I really too don't much, have too a much beef Tim other Burton. than 
I okay, don't, well, yeah, things do get yeah, burtonized. It was, it was too Burton-y. Um, hey, but at my, least Johnny Depp was Ultimately, my issue with it is that it's another damn reboot. Now, granted, it came well before most of the, the reboots that have completely burned me out on reboot syndrome. But still, it is a reboot, and it's not like it was horrible or anything. Uh, I mean, I found things to like about it, but ultimately, I mean, I didn't watch it when it came out. I, I saw did. it, like, years later, and the only reason I watched it was just, I, I think it was, like, the only thing on at the time or something, because I knew at some point it had been spoiled for me that this was a remake, and I just was not interested. It, 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 it just it follows another long string of films for me that I'm like, why the hell would you remake that? You know, uh, I mean, I'm calling well, on you right now, my friend. What? Rise of the Planet of the Apes. You love it. It's a reboot. I love it, but it is not. No, 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 no. I'm talking like reboot in the sense that it is not connected to the original. I love. You're right. I love Rise, but Rise is sort of a prequel to the original film. But it totally and disregards the other films. It does, and that does bug me a little bit because I think it's a reboot. Gonna... Well, yeah, it is a reboot. I, okay, but what I'm talking about is that the Burton film has no connection to what came before it. Thank God, because the Burton film sucked. Right, well, I mean, but at the same rate, that still bugs me. You know what I mean? I, I think that's ultimately that was my biggest problem with it beyond the fact that it wasn't very good was just the fact of... If you're gonna make another Abe's film, then then make another in the series. Why do you have to just you know come up with this completely new, you know? I mean, it, there was no connection at all, and I didn't feel that it was terribly respectful either. Whereas Rise, I mean, I get nothing but that now, that movie was a love letter to the original films, I agree especially with you the there. first one. Do you, you know? say that because of Charlton Heston's guest role? No, I mean, that's that's just one of, like, a zillion Easter eggs in that movie. But I that think it was a is... poorly conceived Easter egg. Even that. Like, you could have made such so much better use of Charlton Heston. In Rise, you mean? No, in, in uh, Tim Burton's. In Rise? <laughs> oh, okay. Trick. No, I thought you were talking about In Rise. You to- you're talking about In Rise when they talk about Taylor's ship. Oh no! I was well, ta- talking about it in the Tim Burton. Yeah, that's that that's. I I'm sorry, what you Bill. Meant. I misunderstood you. I, I thought you were talking about because um, Charlton Heston is shown in Rise. He's on. I want to say he's on one of the TVs in the Ape Center. I forget which movie it is. Omega Man, I think. He's shown very briefly on one of the screens. Oh, what do they flash him up as? Uh, you know, astronaut. Well, no, they, no, they, no. They mention of Taylor's ship. Right, they make mention of right. Taylor's ship, oh, okay. but what I'm talking about is, you know, there's a part where where um, uh, what's his name from Harry Potter? There's, you know, he's he's telling that that the apes watch TV down there, and he call they call it enrichment. So the TV's like always on, and mm. there's one scene where on the <laughs> it's TV, like my house, okay, <laughs> it's it's showing Charlton Heston speaking from some movie, and I think the movie is the Omega Man. I think. It's either that or Soylent Green. I'm not sure. It might be Soylent Green. But, it's full of monkeys. Uh, but that movie, the now I was talking Rise when I said it's full of nods. I Whether the Burton one is full of nods or not, I don't remember. I mean, I only ever saw it once and was not largely impressed with it. But Rise, uh, well, you know, for you... it being a reboot and all that, I, I find it. 
that it serves very well as a nice prequel to the original movie if you're okay with it kind of disregarding everything that came after. Uh, actually, you know what? It doesn't because I was actually thinking about this today, strangely enough. It actually does not disregard Beneath. It actually well, no. just disregards um, everything from Escape forward. So Escape, right. Conquest, and Battle are kind of disregarded. But just the fact that we see the launch of Taylor's ship, and then later in the movie there's another news story where Taylor's ship has been lost, that was the first real retcon in the series because Beneath said that Taylor, you know, Taylor was lost. That's not how the original movie plays. The original movie, they were on a mission. A one-way and, mission, yeah. Right. Yeah, it, it, I mean, Taylor's initial speech touches on if if everything we thought to be true is is all the people we knew are dead by now. Right. So right. So, yeah. So so that is a retcon. Right. But that's in Rise. So you know, theoretically, anyway, it lines up to have both the original film and Beneath follow Rise. So you know. I like now, that. I, do I you like have it a lot. now? Do you guys have such a negative opinion of the Burton movie? Yes, because it can you separate it from the Planet of the Apes and judge it on its own? Because I don't really have a big problem with it. I mean, no, I mean, I, I'm I'm not a hater. I mean, I like it, but here's the thing for me. Well, because I, I saw this month in almost every show, it's always oh the Burton movie. Oh, we're not covering that one. Like, it's such and I mean, I, I guess if you want to lump it in with all the stuff we have been doing, it is separate and it should be just taken on its own. But, you know, right. it's just, you know, I, I, I just I don't have all the hate for it that I mean, I don't hate it. It's just I, I only ever saw it once. That That's my big thing I want to put out there. I only ever saw it once. I probably would need to rewatch it in order to form like a really solid opinion because I saw it one time. It was it was quite a while ago. And I only have the vaguest of memories of it. My my two biggest problems with it was that it was it was a remake. It was not connected in any way to the originals. The remake itself was actually more of a reimagining because it it wasn't faithful at all to the original movie. They just kind of took this idea of a planet of apes and ran their own direction. So, you know, all of that right there was major strikes against me going into that movie in the first place. This is the whole reason I didn't go see it when it came out. I was just looked at it and said, why, why are you doing that? And I just had no interest, but then I actually sat and I watched the movie and I can't say I wasn't entertained. I mean, I was in, I was enjoying it on a certain level uh, and it was okay. And then it got to the end and the end retroactively made me go, what a piece of crap. Cause the end is just stupid. It's and just the end, stupid end or the end one end. where the monkey comes in with the spaceship or the end end where he gets back to earth. When he the gets back, back to earth one. Yeah. Okay. Now I, that's, I, that's I have to I confess to a retroactive Tim Burton dislike. Because I thought he was okay for a while. To this day, I still like Beetlejuice and Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Yeah. Uh, but probably right around the time of the Planet of the Apes remake was about the time where I just got so tired of the Burtonization of movies. Of, right. of, of his vision of how movies are supposed to be. Of uh, Danny Elfman's scores. Uh, I just got tired of all of it. 
and it retroactively like when Batman came out, I liked Batman. Mm-hmm. Batman Returns, I thought was pretty good. Now I watch them and I just have no patience for them at all. Right. So it is a retroactive dislike. I'm not going to try and pretend. Oh, I always hated these movies, and and hate is too strong of a word too. I don't well, hate them. I mean, people's tastes change. But 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 I think I think it was overkill. I think his his singular vision on movies is so stylized to his aesthetic yeah. and his vision that I grew tired of it and retroactively movies that I had enjoyed I don't enjoy anymore. Right. And Planet of the Apes fits right in with that aesthetic. So even the parts of it where I normally would have been able to watch and kind of say, all right, this is okay, this is entertaining, there's a certain level of it that just kind of irks me a little bit, and it bothers me. And, uh, I mean, in that movie, I think Tim Roth is actually a real good actor, but I feel like he was poorly used in that. Some of the, I mean, the ape makeup in that is pretty good. Well, I mean, it, it only goes to the fact that it's, whatever 32 years after the original well yeah you would think and, the makeup would would improve by then and and it was great how paul giamatti really didn't have any makeup on at all uh, his character was just annoying <laughs> i He's found great, his character great orangutan annoying and and what's his name uh the tim burton's woman also harry potter lady uh, helen, helen uh, bottom, bottom carter oh yeah. she was annoying in the movie and Mark Wahlberg. Mark Wahlberg's another one. Not Mark Wahlberg. What about yeah, Michael no, Mark Clark Wahlberg. Duncan, though? As, he uh, was good. He was good. I like Michael Clark Duncan. But uh, Mark, Mark Wahlberg's another one where I have a retroactive problem with. Let's just uh, Mark. Kids today. Wahlberg. <laughs> you know, on, on the auto finish, it's got Mark Wahlberg third nipple. <laughs> what the hell? What is he, Scaramanga? What is <laughs> Apparently. Wasn't he the woman in the tent in uh, Mallrats? <laughs> yeah, that was uh, that was what's her name from Three's Company. No way. What? Yeah, what's her name? Uh, the the later the the last one that was on Three's Company. What's no it? way. Was that really her? Ooh, yeah, Jenny Lee Harris. No, after uh, Priscilla Barnes. Priscilla Barnes. That was her. Wow. Why do I know these things? <laughs> All right. Wow. Uh, Wahlberg had been in trouble. This is from Wikipedia. Wahlberg had been in trouble 20 to 25 times with the Boston Police Department in his youth. By age 13, Wahlberg had developed an addiction to cocaine and other substances. At 15, civil action was filed against Wahlberg for his involvement in two separate incidents of harassing African-American children. The first, some siblings, and the second, a group of black school children on a field trip by throwing rocks and shouting racial epithets. At 16... Wahlberg approached a middle-aged Vietnamese man on the street and, using a large wooden stick, knocked him unconscious while yelling a racial epithet. The same day, he also attacked another Vietnamese man, leaving, leaving the victim permanently blind in one eye. For these crimes, Wahlberg was charged with attempted murder, pled guilty to assault, and was sentenced to two years in state prison at Boston's Deer Island House of Correction. He served 45 days of the sentence... In another incident, the 21-year-old Wahlberg fractured the jaw of a neighbor in an unprovoked attack. Commenting in 2006 on his past crimes, Wahlberg has stated, I did a lot of things that I regret, and I have certainly paid for my mistakes. He said the right thing to do would be to try to find the blinded man and make amends, and admitted he has not done so. But added that he, has no, he, but he was no longer burdened by guilt. You have to go and ask for forgiveness. And it wasn't until I really started doing good and doing right by other people as well as myself that I really started to feel that guilt go away. 
so I don't have a problem going to sleep at night, and I feel good when I wake up in the morning. Um, I don't even feel like going on anymore. It makes me sick. <laughs> now I understand what I'm. <laughs> You don't you don't believe in in forgive? I mean that I, yeah, I do. That's a long time ago, dude. Yeah, and what has he done to make up for it? Why what why why should he be forgiven? Why should I line his pockets with money? I, I'm not saying you should. I'm just saying that you know. I mean, come on. I'm saying he's a bad guy, and I don't necessarily want my money going into his pocket. Okay. I mean, I'm not going to defend the guy. I don't know him. I mean, I've I've seen you know maybe a handful of his movies, and uh, you know, it, it, for the longest time, I thought he was uh, an ex baseball player. So I, 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 <laughs> I have an ex-con. no, you know, I have no connection <laughs> to the guy whatsoever. So well, you know, Paul, I, I, but seemed... I'm just I'm I, by what you read. I mean, I would he I attacked would, a guy with did... an, in an unprovoked attack and blinded him with a stick. And he was 16. Oh, so it's okay then. I'm not saying it well, was okay, but I mean, I'm we, sure that the three of us sitting here probably did some crazy shit when we were I under never, the age of I never, did anything like that. I can honestly say I never did anything like that. I never hit anybody with a stick. I don't think I ever attacked anybody <laughs> unprovoked, period. Uh, I don't think I attacked anybody unprovoked, but I may have damaged property. Did you ever go out egging or playing oh, ma- mailbox You're going to say that's the same thing? No. Well, I'm I mean, just, I'm just making. Get off point. my lawn. <laughs> my God, we've launched the get off my lawn cast on Planet of the Apes. I, I you know, I say my position is what he went out and he became a famous actor and he made a lot of money. So now he's OK. Now that it doesn't matter that he did those things. He did nothing to make up for them. All right. You know, if, if the article said, oh, sometime after he, he became famous, he started age. this foundation to, to help people who were victims of racial crimes. OK, you know what? Now he's trying to do something to make amends, saying he asked himself for forgiveness and gave it to himself. That's not enough. <laughs> I don't know. I've seen enough Lifetime movies to understand that first you got to <laughs> forgive yourself. OK. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's. I think we need to change the topic before I say something I'll regret. Go ahead. Go ahead. Say <laughs> go something. ahead. Say it. No, I, might, well, no, I, I might admit you something might regret it, but Scott and I will. You guys don't want to know. <laughs> we already know saying, you were once I'm a not woman. It's all right. Don't do things ah, in youthful indiscretion. But this is, this is just, you know, those are the acts of a bad person, not, not somebody who's doing something that's just a little indiscreet. And it's multiple times. It's not like he had... Come on, thing. dude. He's We've all been a random kids. stranger with a stick at one time or another. It's okay to just go ahead and admit it, all right? <laughs> he was throwing rocks at kids. He's beating people un- up unprovoked for, well, for the well, crime no, of hold on, hold Maybe on. he lives in a, sh- in a boring maybe, shit town. Yeah, say, you know, he had nothing he, else to do on a Friday no, night. Maybe, you know, you don't maybe, know. Maybe other, you know, uh, you know, we don't know what the whole dynamic of his neighborhood was. Maybe other groups of kids were throwing rocks at him, too. I mean, maybe he was just retaliating back. You know, it's like, you know, uh, uh, the outsiders, you know, Pony Boy and and all that. I must have missed that part of the article where they talked about how he was getting retaliation or something. I I don't know. I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying, I'm just, we weren't there. I'm coming right out and saying it's wrong. (laughs) Yes, I, yes, I will agree. It's wrong. Maybe the guy had a spider on him. He was just trying to help him out, you know? Wait, don't move. Don't. Oh, sorry. Right in the eye. 
Oh. Now, I realize I may have gotten overly passionate with my disgust by the guy, but I am disgusted by him, seriously. Well, Paul, I think I found a, another thing that you and I ha- have in common and is that we can really hold a grudge because my wife, my wife will say to me, uh, she'll be, uh, hey, the Heinz ketchup is on sale. And I go, yeah. Heinz. <laughs> That's exactly what I say. I, she's like, why? And then, and then, then she remembers because I went in this big, long tirade. I refuse to buy Heinz products because John Kerry is married to Teresa Hines. I am not going to line John Kerry's pocket with my money. That's, we're buying that's my Hunt's. Buddy. That is my buddy. <laughs> we're buying Hunt's ketchup, and we're going to like it. I don't and, care and if we're that, we're getting Del Monte. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. I'll, we'll grow tomatoes, and we'll make our effing ketchup. I'll even eat catsup if I have to. <laughs> so it's screw good them in this fifty-seven stupid flavors. God, well, this is the old man uh, get off my lawn cast. So, Planet of the Apes, eh? <laughs> Planet of the Apes, oh, yeah, yeah. Last Planet of the Apes week, right? Yeah. Uh, I'm gonna have to do some heavy editing on that. Whew. Oh, you gonna take out my my John Kerry speech? Oh, I'm leaving that in. <laughs> oh, great! That'll be the only thing that that'll be. Bill Bill suddenly had an aneurysm and went into the John Kerry speech. No, I will leave in some of my Mark Wahlberg rant. I just may not let it go on for as long as it did. Translation: He's going to cut out everything I said. That's okay, though. No, I'm going to leave. He's going to cut out everything he said, and you and I will just look. You know, <laughs> look like trust me, he does it to me yeah. all the time. <laughs> <laughs> That's why you're on the show, my friend. Comic relief. Oh, man. All right, so Planet of the Apes Month. What? I said, speaking of comic relief, I was segueing with you. Yeah, so Planet of the Apes Month. We've gone through the Marvel Comics version. We've gone through the uh, American Adventure Comics version. We've gone through Mr. Comics. How did that go, by the way? It was wonderful. Sorry you weren't there. I was sorry I wasn't there. I, I felt really badly about that because I, I did want to. I did want to discuss it, but yeah, could well, not make well, the show. Since we got you, I think one of the things we touched on was that we um, we, said we were trying to think that film. maybe that 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 kind of filled out the character of Breck a little more. It gave him a little more menace to him or insanity, like you know, because he was such a scenery chewer in the movie, over the top, not in a good way. And that he was a little bit had a little true truer insanity and menace to him in the in that comic, right? Than in the movie. Well, real real quick in a in a nutshell, I liked it a lot. I liked it because it serves as a nice a, a nice bridge between uh, conquest and battle, mm-hmm. and we actually get the nuclear war for a change, which I, I like that aspect of it too. Um, I enjoyed it. I wish the art had been consistent through the entire series. Um, I yeah, that was our the, yeah. that was our point too. Basically, the first three issues and the last three where the art was completely opposite. It seemed. Yeah, there was. I couldn't tell you which artists I liked and which one I did. I can't remember their names, but there was one I really liked. I really liked the feel and the flavor of the art. And then the other one I just didn't. And they were dissimilar styles, so it, it lent a very uneven feel to the art. But I, I liked the story. I thought the story was very interesting. I loved how 
it was slightly updated, but not in an intrusive way to where it felt very natural. And it wasn't really till you thought about it later going, wait a minute, we didn't have the Internet, you know, during this time. But, you know, that sort of right. thing. But I liked that it was kind of on a sliding time scale. So everything still, you know, pretty much synced up, but it was just a little bit modernized. I thought that was really cool. Um, really, the only... It's not even a, a criticism or anything. It's more of a more of a question, really. Is I had trouble figuring what the hell version of Conquest were they basing this story on? Because in the theatrical version of Conquest, Lisa speaks at the end of the movie, and that's why Breck is spared. But in this, Lisa didn't speak. So yeah, that but, makes me think that they're using the unrated cut. But in the unrated you know, the cut, Brett is smashed to death. To death. So <laughs> yeah, but he's so, obviously alive. So but, I was confused. No, no. And I think I can explain it because, all right, she spoke. She said no. Well, that's just the word that was said over and over and over and over again to, to the apes. What, right. what, what Caesar wanted from her was for her to tell him that everything was going to be all right, because that's basically the last one of the last lines in the comic is where she turns to Caesar and says, basically, it's OK. Everything will be all right. You know, you've done the right. He wanted justification from her and he couldn't get it from her because I guess, you know, at that point, her speech was not that developed. Like like when a baby, when a baby's learning, a baby only learns the first, you know, few words like, you know, F you, dad. Um, <laughs> oh. You know, I mean, no, or dada, mama, you know, so that's, I think that's the level she was at, that she, she could convey a, a, you know, simple things, but it wasn't until later in the book when he had an equal, someone he could talk equally to is what he wanted from it. That's what I got from it. Okay. I can buy that, I guess. Yeah. Cool. I enjoyed it. I'm looking forward to hearing your uh, your your guys' episode on it. I do yeah, regret that I, I could not be there. <laughs> okay. All right, well, I'll skip that one then. All right, so anyway, this time around, we are looking at Planet of the Apes, published by Boom Studios. Uh, they began pub- uh, publishing Planet of the Apes comics in the spring of 2011, Sadly, the series only ran 16 issues, really not very long at all. Um, we'll, we'll get into more of our, our feelings on the whole thing here uh, shortly. But essentially, I, I were you guys following it when it came out? Did, did you buy was, it right along? I was trying to, and I had started at the beginning, but I drifted out about three or four issues in, and then uh, I kind of lost track of it and hadn't really gone back till now. See, I... I uh, I was psyched when it came out, so psyched and so excited about it and everything. I really didn't know anything about it going in, just that it was going to be more Planet of the Apes. So I was really excited about it. Uh, I felt that it came right out of the gate, you know, just really strong. It was a really good book. And I love the marketing scheme that they were doing on it. The book was competitively priced. It wasn't too expensive. It wasn't too cheap. So it was like competitively priced. And then right after the first story arc concluded, I'm not sure what issue that was, issue four or five, they instantly published a collection that I believe they sold for, what was it, 99 cents or something like that? Or wait, no, I think it was $5. And then the the next issue, you know, the, the next issue that began a new story arc was 99 cents, I think. Something to that effect. It was like to try to, 
to get you up to speed and get you hooked and then make you want to pick up the, the next issue of the ongoing, something to that effect. I've always wondered how that worked. I never heard anything more about it. And I'm guessing, just a guess, but I'm guessing that simply the fact that it only ran 16 issues, that I, I guess it didn't work all that well, which is a shame because I thought it was a pretty good book. I'm kind of like Bill in reverse. I was there strongly with the series up until like the last few issues, maybe like the last three or four issues. And um, I don't even think it was the fault of the series. I think this was about the time I was losing interest in going to the comic shop and, and starting to kind of wean you know myself away from paper comics. Uh, but I did go back recently and um, not only finish the series, I reread the, the series in total for you know preparation for Apes Month. Um, but in doing that, it was the first time I actually got to finish the series. And sadly, the series really doesn't finish. There was a, an, an annual and uh, one-shot special that attempted to kind of wrap things up, but it also... I think very intentionally left it wide open so that they could bring it back at some future date. I think it's even hinted that, Hey, we're going to try to bring this back to the best of my knowledge. They haven't done nothing with it since maybe if there's like a new resurgence of apes, you know, interest after the new movie, maybe they'll bring it. I don't know if boom still has the license at this point. I have no idea, but it's a shame. Cause I, as I say, I thought it started off really well. And, uh, at least for the first few arcs, was a really strong title. And while the, the writing kind of waxed and waned, the art was consistently awesome through the entire series. It was really fantastically drawn. But uh, for more details, I think we'll go ahead and turn it over to Paul because he's got the first issue on this, right? Yeah, that's that's been my want now. All of a sudden, I'm the first issue guy with every series we do. <laughs> Uh, I did it with the Marvel series. I did it with the Adventure Comics series. And I think the only reason I didn't do it with Mr. Comics is because we did the entire series. But uh, the first issue of the Boom Studios Planet of the Apes series came out in with a cover date of April of 2011. Now, it had a cover price of three ninety nine, So I think at that time that was still considered to be a little high on the price. Mm -hmm. They had uh, three different covers on it, and the first one by Carl Richardson shows a close-up of a military gorilla, and he's crushing a human skull in his hands. Uh, cover B is by uh, Carlos Mango, and it's a montage of various characters from the story that we're going to read. And cover C was just a variation on cover A, also by Carl Richardson. story is called The Long War Part 1. It's written by Daryl Gregory, art by Carlos Mango, color by... Juan Manuel Tumboras, lettered by Carl Richardson, edited by Ian Brill, and the story takes place 1,200 years before Taylor arrived on the planet. It's the year 2680, and we join the lawgiver in the city of Mach, where he is teaching history to a class of young apes and humans. As he's teaching, a ninja-looking assassin swings in and riddles him with machine gun fire while crying out, Thus to tyrants! The lawgiver's granddaughter, Aliyah, rushes to his side, and before he passes on, the lawgiver says that he's afraid. Afraid for the city, and afraid for all of us. Cut to Southtown, which is pejoratively called Skintown, the human development, where we meet Sully, a very pregnant town leader. She's summoned to see Aliyah, who holds the title of Council Voice. I don't know exactly what that title means, but that's the title she has. 
The message the messenger tells of the death of the lawgiver, and he says that it was a human assassin, despite the fact that the killer was covered from head to toe, and no one actually could see who it was. Sullivan agrees to go, and the security council begins to search Skintown. Next, we go to the city tree, the center of every ape city, where they gather to make laws and to console each other, and to scheme. The lawgiver's death has created a power vacuum. Alaya meets with Naris, chief of the Bajoran army. Oh, wait, wait. No, wrong licensed <laughs> property. I'm sorry. She's the chief voice of the Caesarists, an ape first coalition. As Alaya walks to the interior of the building, she's approached by an old man who voices his sympathy and says that the lawgiver was a great friend to his people. Alaya coldly declares that then maybe they shouldn't have killed him. She makes her way to the basement where she meets with Barden, the chief scientist. He says that he's retrieved 13 bullets and that it's less than half of the bullets that hit him and that they don't have a weapon that can fire that fast, but he knows of machine guns from history. However, the bullets are new, meaning that someone is manufacturing them now and that that's what they need to search for. We cut back to Sullivan, and she's getting ready to head to the Ape City, but first initiates her own investigation. As she travels, Sully thinks back to growing up with Ayala and being afraid of, the, of gorillas, especially Nix, the Butcher of the East. Otherwise, she was happy and raised by the Lawgiver, who, along with Ayala, both knew him as Grandfather. As she leaves for Ape City, she's approached by a man complaining that the apes won't let them into the factory to work. Next, we meet Brother Kale, a mutant bomb worshipper, who is approached by a shadowy figure who returns the machine gun and then leaves without ever having us see that person's face. Or, for that matter, their body. All we see is the shadow. In the ape city of Mach, Sullivan and Alaya meet up, and they debate society and the roles of the two species. Alaya shows Sullivan the bullets. She tells Sullivan that they're going to turn Southtown upside down and inside out and find the weapon. Sully asks for a week to find the killer herself and is given two days. Next, the white troop. So what we have here, once again, of all three starting issues, I think <laughs> I'm seeing kind of a pattern here. Right. Every one of them is dealing with the age between Battle for the Planet of the Apes and the original Planet of the Apes. Every one of them falls in there. Every one of them has basically extreme tension between the humans and the apes. Uh, the humans generally have not become mute yet, although in this story there are those that are mute already, and you know it's not uncommon for them to be mute. But in each story there's the conflict between them and basically the unrest and it's the basically class warfare that's going on and racial warfare that's going on uh, and we're setting up conflict where we have usually a combination of a an ape and a human who have been friends for many years and having to have them seek out the peace ultimately and this one I think of the three that we've done is probably the best of the three. Uh, I'm really glad to hear you say that because I was going to say that. And then I was afraid I would be accused of, uh, you know, ha I don't know what the syndrome would be, but you know, Hey, it's the freshest, it's the newest. So of course it's going to, you know, it's going to have that new car smell, but 
No, I think you're right. I think of the three of them, I, I think it's just frankly the strongest story. Well, I think it's. I well, think it sets up with the strongest characters, and I think that's right. why it it lends itself. I think the stories are are strikingly similar. But, yeah, you know, well, character what's, is what's going to carry the day. Well, what's different about it is that it goes back way further. It's not so close to the original Planet of the Apes storyline, mm-hmm. and, and it's and it, it's not really close to any of the movies because it's what takes place fifteen hundred years before it's. I believe it says before a man named Taylor fell from the stars. Right. So, like I was saying to Paul before you came on, Scott, that like it's like it's the ape middle ages. Is kind of right. the way I looked at it. About twelve hundred years before a man named Taylor fell. Yeah, this, this, that you know, this is like the lost history of the Planet of the Apes that, you know, is you know that in the future we won't see this at all. We know what happens, that, and this is you can see it starting here, more right. so now with hu- humans that are losing the ability to speak. Um, they they did live. I mean, this is like the tail end of what happened. Um, you know, coming from battle, this is where it went. We see how it's starting to change, and more. I mean, it's like I, I well, like I said, the Middle Ages, the, the the middle time between the two between the two movies. Yeah, there's a lot of history to come before we're going to get to Taylor Landing. Well, yeah. Well, see, yeah. I think just the look of the book, the costuming, and and the technology that they're using, and everything, to me, feels very similar to you know, our, our own middle ages. And I like that. I love the visual style of this rather than have the apes clothed, you know, similarly to the movies, which the gorillas somewhat are, but the, and some of the people are some of, well, them. it's almost like there's a regression as they go in the future that right. they lose yeah. a level of technology because we see, like on one of the pages, there's actually airships, blimps. Yes, right, and, and then they become a uh, a big plot point later in the story. Mm-hmm. The only thing artwork wise, I think this this art, and, and I'm not really that familiar with uh, with I'm sorry, uh, Carlos Mango. I don't know him other than this series, but I think the artwork is beautiful. Yeah. Uh, the only thing about it that I don't like. Is in particular Ayala the way he draws her? How she basically has sideburns, but otherwise does not appear to be a furry ape. Uh, yeah, she looks more human. Than yeah, ape. like like go to. She looks like the point Colin when and I'm Carter. From <laughs> <laughs> she looks more like that than she does. Ape. She, she does, but her I her think we first get together, and you could see like her neck. With the outfit she's wearing, her neck and basically her cleavage, and they are hairless parts of her body, unless she's shaving or something. That's uh, kind of what I'm thinking, is that she's supposed to be... I mean, because you see most of the other apes, and they're rather shaggy and disheveled and everything. I think she's supposed to be refined. And so it's very possible that she actually is shaving. See, I wouldn't see that as an ape... Impression of refinement, though, because that would be like they find human the humans thing. to be disgusting, right? But at the same rate, you know that she's—I mean, you know—you notice, as you said, she has the the sideburns and everything, so she's leaving that. So she's still embracing, you know, her chimpness. Yet, 
I don't know. Maybe it's supposed to be, maybe it's supposed to appear as some sort of grooving. So it's not like she's completely shaved head to toe. It's just, you know, this is her, you know, her, their, their version of, you know, neat and trim or something. I don't know. I mean, it's just a guess, but I had noticed that before in the series too, that she's often drawn looking like the, uh, the ape human hybrid from the, from the Burton film. But it didn't bother me because I, I like I say, I took it to be a, a, a level of, you know, she's effectively she's the president of this society. So she, you know, she's supposed to look a little neater and trimmer than everybody else. But, you know, all the rest of the apes, you'll notice, you know, they're pretty much your standard Planet of the Apes apes. They're all shaggy and hairy all over and that sort of thing. So I, I think it's supposed to make her distinctive and stand out yeah and and that could be a choice that they made it's just a choice that doesn't sit well with me otherwise if you eliminate that from it i think the artwork is gorgeous i think Mm -hmm. this is a beautifully rendered book Mm -hmm. i always thought sully was uh was particularly attractive in the book and i don't know if she was supposed to be that way, you know, that like she was supposed to kind of suck you in as a, you know, as a, as the, you know, the cute female character to, to hopefully keep you coming back or not. But just the way she is drawn, she's, I think she's very attractive. Probably she's more got attractive. That pregnancy than a, glow to her. <laughs> yes, she does. But uh, I, I did. I enjoyed this a lot. I mean, the, the first issue definitely hooked me because I think it does a really good job because the first issue of this had to hook you. If it didn't, then it wouldn't work. I think people would just have, have kind of blown it off, but it made something of a splash, at least for a time that, that very first story arc. I remember, uh, at least we were told by boom anyway, that it, you know, it was a big smash hit for them and did very well. I did a little bit research, uh, while you were giving your synopsis and it was the first four issues was the first arc and then they collected it in a uh, in a collected edition. I couldn't find where the price on that was, but I want to say it was five bucks. And then the very next issue, which was issue number five, was only a dollar. And mm. you know, so they made an attempt to you know to gain new readers and and get people sucked into it quickly. But how that worked for them, I really don't know. I mean, like I say, just the fact that it only lasted sixteen issues makes me think that. It must not have been that successful, otherwise it would have lasted longer. Well, as somebody who was reading it when it came out, it did seem to lose some steam as it went on. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't that the story got bad, it was just, I don't know, it, it started to feel a little repetitive. Like, like it was, you know, maybe a victim of the uh, expanded storytelling, the decompressed storytelling. Yeah. Like if they had been able to move it along and, and tell the story at a little bit more of a brisk pace, I think it would have benefited from that. I think it suffered the same fate a lot of modern comics suffer, whereas, you know, it's three, it's four bucks, essentially, three ninety nine. It's four bucks, and for four bucks, you'd like a little bit more meat on the bone. Yeah. And this first issue, I think, is pretty meaty and, and tells a good story. But, yeah, later issues, I can remember some of the later issues, very little would happen. It was a lot of pretty pictures and a little bit more of let's move this story just a couple more paces forward 
but not enough to make you feel like, wow, that was a meaty four buck issue, you know? And Mm -hmm. I I don't know if that's necessarily a fair criticism because so many modern comics suffer from exactly the same thing. I think it's a fair criticism because if they do it and it doesn't work, then you criticize it. Right. Just because everybody else is doing it doesn't make it right. What if all the rest of them were throwing their comics off the Brooklyn Bridge? Would you do that? (laughs) Well, I think also, I, I think you can maybe get away with that when you're one of the big two. So if you have an issue of, say, Batman, that's four bucks and... You, you pick it up and, you, and it takes you two minutes to blow through it because it, all it is is a bunch of pretty pictures and all it does is get Batman from the cave into Gotham City to find out what the commissioner wants. I think that still sucks, but we've become used to it. And there's enough people out there to support those books that you can get away with that. When you're talking about a scrappy independent, completely different story. I think that them following that formula is very dangerous for them because they need that new blood. They need those dollars so much more than the big two need those dollars. And when they fall into that decompressed storytelling to where you walk away going, you know, I paid four bucks for this and it really wasn't worth it. That's dangerous. And that's how I kind of felt as the series progressed. It's funny, again, uh, you know, I was also in looking to see which issue of that was the dollar one, I was looking through my, uh, my inventory, you know, the cover scans is how I keep my inventory these days. I actually have all 16 issues and that really surprised me because I thought that I stopped at some point right near the end, but I actually did get all of the issues. The only ones I didn't get was the annual and the, and the special. So I'm not sure why I stopped reading at some point. I, I guess I must have just kind of lost interest. But I know that uh, that I did not finish the entire series. I didn't finish reading the entire thing until the read for this. Here's, here's another thought, too, on uh, what you were saying. See, with, with an issue of Batman, first of all, they have a built-in core audience that's a little bit harder to send away. Right. Uh, Although they're trying real hard. <laughs> yes, they are. Uh, I, no comment on the current New 52. Uh, but secondly, they're backed by a huge company that for a character like Batman or Superman or Spider-Man or any of the other major characters, the comic book income is only part of the picture. Right. Because there's so much licensing and toys and movies and so many other things that are going on that they could almost afford to take a little bit of a loss or take less income on the comic because there's a certain amount of that that could be considered to almost be advertising for those other things. Whereas now you take Boom Studios, which is an independent company, so it doesn't have the wherewithal of of, uh, Disney or of Warner Brothers, and top it off with not only are they only dealing with the profit that they get from the book, but they're also paying 20th Century Fox for the licensing of the Planet of the Apes property. So they have to turn that much more of a profit just, or, or make that much more income just to turn a profit. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. In, yeah, in, absolutely. In a very absolutely not does. pushing yeah. any sort of conversation forward kind of way? <laughs> no, no, you're, no, you're absolutely <laughs> right. I mean, that's definitely one of those things you've got to think of is that... Uh, yeah, they're licensing this property, so someone else besides just them is uh, is looking for a cut. So 
Unless yeah. unless I'm mistaken, and Boom Studios is owned by 20th Century Fox. I or don't just, believe just Fox so. at this point. Well, now, when they licensed this stuff, like when um, Lucasfilm licensed, I mean, I guess he, when when Marvel Star Wars was coming out, they had certain edicts. I mean, do you think uh, Boom Studios was limited by 20th Century Fox saying, okay, you can do this, but you got to stay away from that? You know, yeah, I you, do. You, you can place it here, but you can't touch this. Especially considering that Rise was coming out right about this time. Right. I'm sure they had limitations on what they could touch and what they couldn't touch. But they're all over stuff in Cataclysm, which we'll get to. I mean, the, they, on the old they stuff. Are. It, it, well, they're, they are in their they are and there aren't. But that's but at the time the movie was coming out. I, I couldn't I feel badly saying this because I can't point to any specific sequence or issue, but I remember sensing that behind the scenes somebody was saying, Hey, don't forget to tie this whole thing in with Rise. And I, I can remember getting that sense as this this primary series went along. And it <laughs> I didn't bother I me. I see you standing at the comic store with your hand like over the comic. I sense something I haven't felt since, <laughs> now, since <don't>, the 70s. <laughs> don't, don't get me wrong. I, I, while I think that they did have some editorial uh, control over, over what was going out, I don't think it went anywhere near the level of what Lucasfilms would do oh, with, with no. the expanded universe. Yeah. No. No, I think it was more a sense of, as I say, as the, as the movie got closer and especially as the movie was in theaters, I definitely gained a sense of, hey, don't forget to tie this whole thing in or make little references or that sort of thing. Because that, that happened during the course of the series where it was subtle, but there were definitely things that referenced or made you think of you know the, the picture that was out at the time and... You know that in itself is—I uh, don't know if I want to say interference, but definitely you know you can you could sense the hand of Lucasfilm or not Lucasfilm, but 20th Century Fox in that whole thing. I did anyway. I'm sure that's who it was coming from. But they did tie-in stuff with the movie as well. You know, I, I'd completely forgotten that until just this moment. That I, I think I want to say they did a prequel comic to the movie. I believe. Yeah, they did. That I did not read. That was not part of my uh, my read through for from Boom. I completely forgot about that. To be honest with you, I had read it I, at I, the time, but I don't recall. It was it was like in Africa when they captured right. Bright Eyes, right? And I I really don't remember. It was something where she was almost sold out by a member of her tribe somehow, right? And but I, I don't remember the details of it, and it it didn't seem particularly good. Sold out oh, yeah, for thirty. For 30 pieces of banana chips. <laughs> I need to get my hands on it just to be a completist. But yeah, I, I feel badly now that I had not read that because I, I, frankly, I just forgot about it. Because it, it was it was forgettable. Yeah, I, I remember it being on the stands. I may have even flipped through it, but I, I really don't remember. I know I didn't read it. But the I, thing, I can't uh, remember what the name of it sorry. was. The, the thing uh, about this series that I thought think makes it stand out over the others is the three-dimensional characters that they introduced to you right away. Three-dimensional compelling characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Sully and Ayala right away. Uh, they, you, you only get a, a quick view of them in this, but the character of uh, the albino gorilla, Nix. 
who's the butcher of the East. Right. Uh, he he was a fascinating character as it went on. Um, I'm trying to remember this uh, Sully's right hand man, who I think is her husband. I'm trying to remember. It's been a little while since no, the entire series. No, no, they were actually just best friends, and there was a lot of speculation as to whether he was the father of her child. I could be wrong. I don't think they ever reveal who the father is. I, I again, I could be dead wrong on that, but I'm pretty sure they don't. And even if they do, I don't believe it's him. But I, I yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I can't remember what the hell his name was. Yeah, um, I don't think they say it in this issue. Yeah, they may not. And then his daughter was the Donna Troy-looking mute girl. Who she was another character I really liked as well. Um, I don't remember what her name was either because they that was part of the was it Cheka was that her name? I, yeah, Cheka was her uh, name. I, I, it's been a little while. You know, I reread this issue to do this today, but I don't. Uh, I, I, I don't. I didn't read the rest of the. I didn't reread the rest of the series. Unfortunately, a, uh, they expect me to go to work during the day. essentially the primary characters at least starting out because they they would add characters and subtract characters as the series went on but essentially the the main characters were of the humans you had sully who was the the, she was what they called mayor although she didn't seem to like the title she was kind of essentially the leader of the humans. she was the mayor of skin town and you know as we meet her she's like very pregnant and then it was her right-hand man who I cannot remember what the hell that dude's name was. He was essentially like the Han Solo of the I think story. He, I think he was Chakotay. Was he Sullivan? <laughs> or, no, no, that was her. She was Sol- she, she was Sullivan, that's right. Sully yeah, Sullivan. she's Sullivan. Yeah, I can't, I can't remember what his name was. And then um, his daughter, Cheka, who was mute. And then on the ape side, you had... Uh, Alea, who was the voice, the, the the leader of the apes, and oh, Bacco, that was his name. Bacco was the, the yes, human guy's yes, that's name. Right. Bacco. And then you had and if there were two of them, it would be tobacco. Tobacco. <laughs> I was waiting for. Or that. if he was eating, if he was chewing Maybe tobacco, chewbacco, chewbacco, chewbacco. And then you had uh, what was the white ape's name again? Nix. Nix. Nix who I think we only learn about in flashback this issue. I think it takes till next issue where, where we actually meet him. If like, I remember, yeah, he's, up he's, to. he's imprisoned and yeah, they let him out to, lets find, him out to, yeah, lead to find the, the assassin. Yeah. And, and they also he, make very good use in this series of the mutants. Yeah, but do they, I was do just going to mention, yeah, the, the but brother. I don't think they, they right away come out and reveal that they are i mean well yeah we know they're mutants but i don't think they show their hand with the powers right away do they no no it takes a while before we learn that that they have the powers but what i liked was right away you could sense the hand of the mutants in the tensions and the things that were going on because we learn right in this very first issue it was the mutants that supplied oh, supplied the, the, weapons, the killer yeah. of the lawgiver with the automatic rifle which i thought was really cool so and these mutant guys, actually, in all of the series that we're going to discuss tonight, it turns out that the mutants are actually the bastards in the background constantly setting the humans and the apes against each other, which I thought was really cool, too. So the threads run through all of the series, not just the primary series. And uh, not only are they, um, do they help, you know, do they man- man- manufacture weapons, 
Um, they uh, are great at making latex masks. And uh, <laughs> they also can build uh, miniature replicas of bombs. As, mm-hmm. as we see, he's worshipping the mini-me bomb. In the, the, <laughs> in, in uh, Brother Kale's mission. Right. So, it's like, oh, man, I gotta get me one of those for paperweight. Be awesome. I think this guy is Kale. I could be wrong, but I I think he is actually Brother Kale, mm-hmm. if I remember properly. Yeah, they don't mention it here. They just say that it's. Well, I mean, you're to assume that this is Brother Kale and it's his mission because it's a pretty small place. Right. <laughs> yeah. So I'm I'm gonna say that the cover is kind of a pinup cover. Really doesn't have much to do with what goes on. It at least cover A. Right. Uh, cover B does kind of, it's a little bit more revealing, but it's just kind of a montage and doesn't really do too much to sell the book. So I'm giving the cover images a C plus, but I am giving the overall story and the art an A. So I'm, I'm going to discount the cover and I'm giving the book overall an A. I, I got no beef with that. I might give the, um, the, the montage cover maybe a little bit higher grade. Yeah. I prefer the montage cover, but I don't think it really sells the book. I have never uh you know, beyond where the, the images of the different covers are shown here, I've never actually seen a copy of the book with cover B, but I prefer cover B, the montage one, because it's uh it's reminiscent Especially of Bacco and Nick's fighting, it's reminiscent of George Perez, and you can't go wrong with a Perez cover. I mean, yeah. it's not Perez, obviously, but it, it just it's reminiscent of it. The primary cover, the one that I have, the cover A with the gorilla crushing the uh, the human skull. I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. It's a perfectly functional cover, but I got to be honest, it kind of it kind of throws me back to the adventure comic stuff. Mm-hmm. And it, you're right, and it doesn't sell the book. It, it doesn't tell you anything about what it's about, other than hey, here's a nice bit of nostalgia for you. Well, I need something more than that. Tell me what it's going to be about. You know, give me give me an idea of the era or of the look or of the characters I can expect to see inside. And that's mm-hmm. what cover B gives you. So I, I like cover B quite a bit. And with, with the um, exception of showing a flashback of Nick's the albino gorilla, there is really no gorilla interaction in this book either. So it's not even like, okay, it's a poster image, uh, but it shows a gorilla and you're going to see some gorillas in this book. You really don't true. see any gorillas in this book. That's isn't very the, true. Uh, isn't the the mortician a gorilla? The scientist, yeah, kind the of. Scientist, but he's not a he's he's not the gorilla like on the cover. Well, no, 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 he's not. Not, not a vicious attacking gorilla. In fact, he's a scientist. Vicious killer. He's a friendly gorilla. <laughs> it's like McGilla. You buy him for a penny. McGilla gorilla with a hat. <laughs> he's for sale. One penny. I got a gorilla for sale. Story and art, I, I'm going to give a, a, definitely an A. Actually, I, the, the art, I, I think I'm actually going to say A+. I love it. I think the art is beautiful, especially coupled with the coloring. I think the coloring job in this really helps sell the book. The, the mm-hmm. colorist did a mm-hmm. fantastic job on this. It, it's really nicely colored. Uh, I, I in the lines. It. Yep. Used all of all sixty four <laughs> colors in this box, but no, it's 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 nice. I mean, you can tell that the the person that colored this put a lot of thought into the the colors that were chosen and the palette of colors, you know, with with 
different scenes being colored in different ways. You know, you go from the very earth tony feel of Alea's office and everything, and then when she goes down the hallway to the mortician, suddenly it's you know everything's like spooky and green and kind of misty looking, and it, it just sets a tone. You know, it makes a mm-hmm. mood that really works for the book. Kind of like Steve- you're in Chris Honeywell's house. <laughs> oh, it's much creepier than that. <laughs> But no, I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. It was a very strong first issue that uh, that I thought uh, really came uh, you know, really came out of the the gate running or swinging or whatever the hell analogy you want to use. I enjoyed it. What do you I think, Bill? A, I got a question though. Well, I mean, I already gave my grade earlier, but I got a question on on page twenty four to where Elia whatever is making the saying that you know to to Sully says your town has become a shelter to radicals and war criminals. Are they also doing guerrilla dentistry in this picture? <laughs> I think what they is... are. Just hold still. I got to get that eye tooth out of there. It's infected because he's, he's got the pair of pliers on a. I mean, uh, you know, maybe that's that's the radicals and the war criminals. But you know, it could just be ape dentistry. Misunderstood. I guess it's better than ape uh, urologist. Yeah. I do not need to be seeing that. All right, just on that note, uh, Scott, you got a book? <laughs> I do have hey, a book. Wait, 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 wait. I, I need to take a quick break. Can we edit this out? Yeah, All right. I got to feed the dog and uh, do some other things. I'll be right back. Is that a euphemism? That's the same thing Paul said. No, it's not a euphemism. Blah, 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 blah. Euphemism. <laughs> <laughs> the dog's looking. I didn't feed the dog, and he's looking at me, and I think he's going to eat me if I don't feed him soon. <laughs> I just saw that in the chat. You did say the same thing. <laughs> I'll be right, right back. All right. all right, me too. All right. It all started with an experiment. Caesar was the first. Oh, you're on. It became a virus. It wiped out half the planet. But the apes didn't just survive it. They evolved. If you threaten his family, he will retaliate. They're animals! We're going to kill every last one of them. So, Scott, what's your book? Are we doing your book or my book? Yeah, are we back? And we're back. All right, welcome back to Planet of the Apes Month, week four. So, this time around, we're going to look at the next book in this series. That's the book that uh, I have chosen. A little bit of history on this. One of the things I really, really liked about the Boom Studios ape stuff is that in addition to the regular series that they were uh, putting out, which they just simply called Planet of the Apes, and the uh, stuff that they did that was uh, a tie-in to the movie Rise of the Planet of the Apes, they did uh, a series of miniseries that were set much closer to the original 1968 film and actually incorporated characters that we would meet in that film. Uh, So it was a series of actually three different... uh, Well, the first two were minis. The first two were four-issue minis. The first one's called Betrayal of the Planet of the Apes. Second one was Exile on the Planet of the Apes. And then the last one was a 12-issue... I'm not sure if you'd call this a mini or a maxi, I guess... I'd say maxi uh, maxi series uh, called uh, Planet of the Apes Cataclysm, and so the it's book maxi that... if you pad it a little. 
good lord. I'm sorry, I had to get that pun in. <laughs> uh, and I and I, I took the high road and just kept my mouth shut. Uh, Why, had you thought of the same thing? Oh, yes, of course. Yes. <laughs> but the nice thing about these is, as I say, you know, in- incorporated characters from the movies actually helped shade in the characters and events from the movies as well. And each of the series built upon each other as well. So they, they all carried the continuity forward. So the book that I've chosen is Betrayal of the Planet of the Apes, number four. This was the last issue of the first miniseries. Um, it has a cover date on the February 2012. was written by uh, Corinna Becko, I'm going to say, B-E-C-H-K-O, uh, and Gabriel Hardman. Uh, who also did the art. Uh, Hardman did the art in the book. Now, in order to really do justice to this issue, I kind of have to encapsulate the series as a whole up to this point. So I'm going to give you just basically the Cliff Notes version that'll bring you up to speed as to where we are here. So the series itself is set 20 years before a man named Taylor fell from the stars. And Betrayal tells the stories and backstories of several characters, some of which are familiar to us from the films. The primary players are Citizen Alaron, a gorilla and formal, former general of some fame within Ape City. Turn, who is a human, uh, he's mute, but he has been taught to communicate through sign language by his ape master, an ape named Cato, and a much younger Dr. Zaius. So when Cato is murdered by gorillas who cover it up by making it look like a suicide, Turn, the human, is the only witness. He is seen fleeing by Alaron, who arrives too late to save his friend, but suspects foul play, uh, but then he fails to convince the council. Mostly because Counselor Tenebris is in on the whole thing, having been the one to dispatch General Ursus and his gorilla thugs to kill Cato in the first place. Realizing that Alaron may be trouble, Cato orders Ursus to handle it. And so Alaron is arrested for the murder of a subordinate that happened some 15 years ago. At trial, Alaron doesn't put up much of a fight and is convicted of breaking ape society's most sacred law, ape shall never kill ape. Uh, and is sentenced to life at something called the Reef. Dr. Zayas, feeling a bit stung that he wasn't consulted about the expedition into the Forbidden Zone that uncovered the evidence against Alaron, is, suspic- uh, is suspicious of the timing of this whole thing and sets off in search of some answers of his own. Ursus, meanwhile, is reassigned to the Reef by Tenebris to tie up a loose end, namely Alaron. And as this issue starts, issue number four, the two gorillas, um, Ursus and Alaron, are locked in a life or death struggle and plummet off a cliff into dark waters as the reef burns. Results of a revolt instigated by Alaron, who has determined that the prison is overrun not with hardened criminals, but instead with loyal apes who've been banished there by Tenebris. Dr. Zaius ambushed by gorillas while investigating the digs in the Forbidden Zone, is blindfolded, roughly marched into a darkened basement, and plunked into a plastic chair on thin metal legs right out of any modern-day middle school classroom. 
The hood is removed, and Zaius finds himself in a strange room with electric lights overhead, cardboard boxes strewn all about, a radiation symbol on the wall, and rows upon rows of packed bookshelves. A figure approaches and steps into the light. We, Tenebris says, have much to talk about. So I'm actually going to read the next sequence as it appears right in the comic itself. So Zaius stands up and he says, what's the meaning of this outrage? And Tenebris says, do you know where you are? To which uh, Zaius responds, I've heard uh, rumors about a secret archive, but I thought them urban legends. I apologize for your rough treatment. I wanted you here quickly and quietly. I hear my gorillas were overzealous. Overzealous? I feared for my life. Just look at this. What is it? Scrolls bound together? What you have in your hand is called a book, and it was made by humans. As was this metal contraption. Look at the way the metal was formed, every cut exact, like the room we're standing in. But that's impossible. It may hurt... Excuse me. It may hurt ape pride to think that man was once better than him, but that is not the danger. Man was smart and skilled, but he was still a demon. Apes took a different path and grew rich in wisdom instead. Humans built great structures. Their cities were vast, but it was as the lawgiver said, Beware the beast man, for he is the devil's pawn. There was something inside of man that made him want to destroy what he built. Alone among God's primates, he kills for sport, or lust, or greed. With each passing season, men found new ways to kill more of each other. Yea, he will murder his brother to possess his brother's land. And yet humans were so numerous that there seemed to be no end to them. Unlike apes who cherish life, they worshipped destruction. They had no wise lawgiver to show them their folly. All their technological marvels served one purpose, carnage. And still they were not satisfied. He would make a desert of his home and of yours. He discovered a power so vast that it could destroy everything with a single stroke. He learned to make the sun shine on the surface of the earth. And that was his downfall. That is how apes truly inherited the planet and why we must honor and preserve the narrow way of the lawgiver. We must cleave to the sacred scrolls at any cost, lest we loose the demon hiding inside of man, for he is the harbinger of death. So later, under the cover of darkness, Zaius and Tenebris return to Ape City via a stagecoach and are ambushed by Alaron, who managed to survive his battle with Ursus and now intends to dispatch Tenebris but he finds that he can't pull the trigger. He cannot break the lawgiver's command. Ape does not kill ape. And Alaron tells of how his subordinate, a man, uh, excuse me, a gorilla rather, named Varus, really died. He and Varus, who hated each other, were locked in combat, uh, locked in combat when Varus got the upper hand and aimed his weapon right in Alaron's face, intent on killing his superior officer but he never got the chance as a round from behind ended his life. It was a human wielding a rifle, defending his family whom Varus had been threatening that killed the ape. Alaron had allowed everyone to believe that he'd killed Varus because he owed the human his life and feared for what would happen to their species if apes were to learn that humans could use firearms and had in fact killed an ape. 
Tenebris orders Alaron apprehended again, but that's when Turn attacks and plunges a knife repeatedly into the counselor's heart, killing him, and then he turns on Zaius. But Alaron defends the doctor and is himself stabbed in the heart and again plummets into dark waters. Turn, distraught over having harmed his master's friend, dives in after him. The mini ends with Zaius delivering his speech to the city, mourning the loss of Tenebris, uniting the ape species, and outlawing humans within city limits, while somewhere, Turn tends to a wounded but still alive Alaron. Um, I picked this issue for a very specific reason, because I love the fact that it answers a question I've had since I was a kid. What exactly did Zaius know? This lays it out very plainly that Zaius knew exactly what the secret history of the Planet of the Apes was. He knew about uh, the Forbidden Zone, about man having once been the dominant species, about how apes rose, everything. These events having taken place 20 years before the movie really shade in Zaius's backstory. The first two minis, really, even though Alaron seems to be the front and center character, to me, it's Zaius who is really the main character because it's giving you his true backstory. And uh, I really, really enjoyed the first two minis, um, Betrayal and Exile. Really solid stuff. And anybody who's a fan of the original film and or actually the original film series and and wants some shading in uh I, I could not recommend this higher i really really enjoyed it really solid stuff um the art could be a little better it could be a little cleaner it's a little muddy it's a little dark but it's functional um it is um Again, I, I hate to stereotype, but it is kind of stereotypical indie art in a lot of ways. But I like it. It, it. it does fit the tone that they're going for with this. And it does feel very kind of old school apes, which is exactly what this is. I mean, you, you, I could actually see some of the panels and some of the artwork in this miniseries having been in black and white in the old Marvel magazines. And so I, for that reason, I kind of liked it and, and kind of give it a, a pass. So on the R, I'd say, I don't know, maybe like a C plus, B minus, something like that. Because it's not bad. It's just I, I would have liked something a little more dynamic. But it, it is pretty good, especially in this particular issue. I love the – as Tenebris is telling Zaius the story of man, we're getting some really nice panels of like riots in the streets and – uh, world war scenes. And then of course a giant mushroom cloud at the end of the story and everything. So I like those sequences. Um, the writing, I'm going to give a straight up, uh, a plus. I, I love how this was laid out. It's very intelligently thought out. Again, I did like the super condensed cliff notes version of this, but there's a lot of other shit going on in this story besides just the Dr. Zayas portion of the story, but that's of course what I focused on. So that's, you know, what I gave you in the, in the synopsis, really solid read, really good stuff. And again, like I say, each of these build on each other until you finally get to cl cataclysm, which 
is kind of a different beast. So I'll, I'll hold my thoughts until we get to that because that's uh, that's what Bill's going to cover. So what did you guys think of this? Well, I didn't. Uh, I hadn't read this one, but looking at this, I see now some of the characters that are in Cataclysm, like Alaron is mentioned. In fact, right. there's a whole. Well, I guess we'll just talk about it when we get there. But um, but just looking at at this, uh, I too thought that the art, like if you compare this to the Planet of the Apes proper by Boom, obviously it's a different artist. But yes, it has a different feel. It's more. Whereas the other one, everything looked more crisp and new, and you know we we call it the Middle Ages of apes. This looks like, you know, things have progressed. You know, have devolved back to an earlier technology period. It's not as advanced. I mean, and I think the art kind of conveys that. It the simplistic. Mm-hmm. You kind of called it indie art, but I I don't know if maybe they did this as a choice, perhaps. Right. Um. But yeah, now I see some of the things where uh, you know the the backstory to some of the stuff I was reading in Cataclysm. So I mean, I mean, it's 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 a good read, and I did a quick skim of Exile, which I guess takes place two years after this story right. does. Mm-hmm. But I didn't really get I did I just skimmed through and didn't really get the gist of that. So I kind of wish I had read these other two before I read mine, <laughs> all twelve issues of mine. <laughs> Yeah, they definitely build upon each other, and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it's interesting. I'm not, I'm not sure how you were able to, to follow along with Cataclysm, having not read <laughs> these other two first. Because well, definitely... I just accepted. I'm like, okay, so Alaron is an ape with an eye patch, but you know, I didn't really get. I mean, and, and, and because they did describe some things in Cataclysm as to how they got here, but I didn't know about the the whole you know uh, the human had actually killed the other ape in the past and all that. You know, it just mm-hmm. said that you know Alaron's. It mentioned Alaron's crime and that he was, you know, was in prison and then he had a. And it talks about well, I guess at the end of Exile, he gets uh, buried in a landslide. There, right at the end of it, and then that's brought up. But then in Cataclysm, there's a mentioning of a person that actually betrayed him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but yeah, I I see now that all three of these weave together, so it's kind of like like the Star Wars prequels. Now I'll get to go right. back and read these these other two, and I'll fill in the gaps I didn't quite understand when I was reading Cataclysm. I don't remember if it was the annual or the special, but there's actually a a short story that in one of the two of those that tells how. Uh, Alaron lost his eye as well, mm. which I thought was very interesting because it was uh, it was kind of a gruesome story. Oh, but yeah, art wise, I think it's more of a choice with this, and I'm going to give it probably a, a B plus. And the story is an A. Uh, the cover, I'm trying to think of the cover on this one real quick. Uh, the cover is just kind of, it's just, it's okay. It's like a it's more yeah it's more like a pop art cover i would say would you kind of agree with that assessment yeah very I mean, much you... so i i didn't find any of the color covers to these particularly dynamic as a matter of fact um I... this entire series had alternate covers and they had photo covers were some of the alternate covers and the photo covers were of dr zayas 
which <laughs> I thought was very interesting. You know, right, you know, right out of the movies, they looked like publicity stills or something right out of the films. Yeah, because this this cover has Alaron in red at, at, at the top, overlooking what appears to be like a a sea of gorillas, and they I guess they're looking down, they're falling, but they're all colored blue, and beneath them everything is white. Right. And it just says it's a very. That's why I said it was like pop art kind of cover. And yeah, I'd give the cover like a C. But yeah, this is this is pretty cool. It fills in gaps that I was that I was missing. Right. I'm. How about uh, you? I'm. I'm sorry. What? No, I, I was just gonna say. How, how about you, Paul? Oh. Uh, <laughs> I'm. I'm with you on the art. I'm a little higher on it than Scott is. I think. It is a choice. I think it's setting a mood. I think it's the tone of the book. It's the dark tone of the book. I generally do like a cleaner style as well, but I, I see where this kind of suits the story that's being told, and I'm in line with a B to a B plus on it. Uh, on the story, I'm slightly lower than you guys. I think it's it's good quality. It's good stuff, but I, I try to save the A pluses for the best of the best. The you know series if I'm if I'm listing my all time greatest books ever I'm, and while this is really good I don't think it quite reaches that level so I'm I'm more in kind of the A minus level on this one hmm. so I'm I think overall our, our grades are all very similar uh, it's just a you know slight variation on it. Uh, I think it was a good, good, solid read. I think it does give you some insight into the uh, characters, uh, and it shows you, you know, there's a little, little bit of the difference between the story I covered, where they're creating new characters in the Ape Legacy, and this one where they're taking characters that already existed and now fleshing them out a little further. And I, I think from a writing point of view, it's initially easier to do the latter, but harder to be creative with it. If that makes sense, I, I think it's 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 real easy to come up with ideas. Oh, let's have Doctor Sayers doing this. Let's have Cornelius doing that. Uh, but to actually do it where you're telling stories of any type of import, because you have to do them within the framework of the existing uh, facts and 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 the universe as it is, I think it does become difficult to tell meaningful stories. And they do manage to do that here, which I think is a, a huge plus. Well, yeah, because you're—it's things that weren't said in the movies, but are implied. I would say, like, you know, like, well, like the line where Zaya says, "Don't go there. You won't like what you see." That right there says he knows. He knows. Yeah. I, I had this, no doubt. Yeah. Just from watching the movie, probably the first time I watched it when I was whatever I was five, six years old, I knew that Doctor Zayas knew. <laughs> it, it, yeah. it, 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 you know, it, I think it was it was very very clear that he knew exactly what was going on, and uh, this just this doesn't tell us that he knew. This confirms that he knew, right? Because I think we all knew that he knew. He knew that we knew that. Well, whatever. <laughs> you know that I know that you know. <laughs> you good, don't know. Good use of the characters and and just good overall story. And okay. I think the dog liked it too. Yeah, the dog wants me to let him out. Dog's a pain in my ass. <laughs> so, um, give me a minute. I'll be right back. You guys talk. Vamp among yourselves. Uh, so, how does uh, 
what do you think about um do you want to talk about conspiracy here or wait till after we talk about cataclysm? And I'm going to ask for your help a little on cataclysm. I'm going to try to do a quick recap of the previous 11 issues. <laughs> oh, good Lord. No, no, I'm just going to do really overview, not going to go crazy. Do you have a pre-written synopsis? No. Oh, no. <laughs> I didn't have time, all right? Give me a break on this one. I didn't have time? I didn't have time, all right? You know... I don't see you. Uh, I don't, I don't want to get all, into it. I wrote I all my. I wrote all mine out in advance. So I know. I know. <sighs> and then you didn't. Couldn't even be bothered to do a. See, I knew. Synopsis. I knew you were going to say that. I knew it. I knew as soon as I told you that 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 you you would you just slap me in the face with that. I even said I'd take another book. It's not that I mind that you take the book, but then then you, you you can't even be bothered to do a synopsis. I read it. I read all twelve of them twice, and then I went over the last <laughs> one a couple times. It's not going to be a train wreck. You said that about Khan. I'm still working on that. Hello. I I was I was being scolded. What's going on? Scott was scolding me. Good, good, and he's 100 percent right. What's he scolding you about? Because I didn't write a synopsis. It's because you suck. Scott Rifen will let you know how much you suck. <laughs> yeah, he usually does. <laughs> uh, I bet you can find a quick synopsis here. What's what's the uh, issue? What's the? Don't be stealing synopses from other no, people no. who actually bothered to do the damn work. <laughs> you do it on Star Trek all the time. That's different. Yeah. Yeah, Mr. Nitpicker's Guide, Mr. Oh, Wikipedia. That's, that's oh, different. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> that's different because you decided it's different. Pot, yeah, meat, kettle. Hi. So it's different. Hello, Mr. Pot. I'm Mr. Kettle. How you doing? <laughs> we're both black from Negrons if we're in Beneath the Planet of the Apes. <laughs> Trying to see if I can find one for you. No, we can do it. We don't need it. What are you banging there? Oh, I was setting my water down. Sorry. I got to keep drinking water. Got to flush my system. Got to get stones out. Twelfth issue doesn't seem to have a synopsis. I know. I look for one. All right. So let's, you know, let's just jump into it then because you know when you don't have a written one, you go for like an hour. <sighs> Jesus. I'm going to go get a book, all right? I'll be back. What, to read while he's doing a synopsis? Exactly, yeah. No! I need you here to help me with the, the do the, the whatever. I wonder what's on YouTube right now. I'm sure there's a cat video you could watch. There's some good porn <laughs> on YouTube. I'm sure. No, you got to go to you porn. You porn for that. Uh, not that I go there. <laughs> it's funny how you were quick to throw out that recommendation, though. <laughs> funny how I hear you typing right now. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops! Caught me. All right, so, all right, we're ready to start back up? We started back up like five minutes ago. Oh, crap. All right, so I guess we're down to our last book. That would be me, and since I was the slacker, uh, I what? have, uh, since I am the slacker. <laughs> <laughs> hey, but I was here last week. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Burned. Burn just like the moon, which 
that's where I'm going to kick off. We're going to do a quick re- re- recap of the first 11 issues, and I'm sure many of you just now are going to turn you off your iPods, but leave them on. Basically, uh, in the opening of uh, Planet of the Apes Cataclysm by Boom Studios, um, the opening took place to where we see the moon is actually um, has Chinese a Chinese rocket base on it. And we're getting a flashback to pre-war days. And also on the Earth, uh, we see our old friend the Alpha and Omega Bomb is back in action. And the... Uh, it appears to be the United States is getting ready to nuke the moon. Uh, but an EMP knocks everything out and boom, the nuclear war happens. And we skip 2000 years in the future to where we see a, uh, I believe that's an orangutan slips into a bunker that's being guarded by two apes. And he places what appears to be a, um, powering device into an ancient computer now. And is able to launch the Alpha and Omega Bomb, which kind of makes you scratch your head. Well, wait a minute. Uh, where did that come from? So anyway, the cataclysm in the Cataclysm Planet of the Apes is that, boom, the moon blows up. So the moon is is uh, destroyed, which leads to dire consequences for the uh, people in the Ape City. Which, uh, like we had said before, this is taking place just before. Now I think this is eight years prior to Taylor um, coming uh landing from from the stars and over the next few issues basically they're trying to figure out how to survive now that the moon's been destroyed there's floods and you know everything is just thrown out of whack which side note do you guys remember i want to say when taylor in the planet of the apes movie did they make a note that there's no moon I mean, because obviously they don't think they're on the Earth. But so that would make sense how at night they never saw the moon because it was destroyed here, right? I have been meaning to rewatch the first film again to see if there's ever a shot of the moon. Ever since I read this series, I've wanted to rewatch it to see and, and I haven't gotten around to it yet. But I'm very curious. I would like to think that if someone sat down and wrote this series that that there must not be a shot and because see this to me cataclysm exists for really just one reason and and that's oh, yeah. to explain some things which we're, i'm sure we're going to get into when we get to your issue proper so i'll hold off on that right so that said i'm i would think that this person must have done their homework but i would like to to you know keep an eye on that the next time i watch the movie because off the top of my head, I can't remember a shot with the moon. And again, you would think that would be a dead oh, well, giveaway. I'm well, on a plus... website right now called Science Fiction and Fantasy. And mm. the question posed there is, where is the moon in the Planet of the Apes 1968? It reads, in the original Planet of the Apes 1968, Charlton Heston discovers at the end of the movie that he is on planet Earth after all. But he surely could have known it sooner if the moon were present in the sky. When he abandons the sinking spaceship at the beginning, we can see the Earth time display showing the year 3978, not millions of years in the future. So what happens to the moon? Why wasn't it visible? The, uh, the response to it says the movie does not, does not make it clear what became of the planet's moon and the omission is intentional. Despite the fact that the moon was not visible in the sky after Heston's landing, it would not necessarily imply anything to him other than 
other than he could not see the moon at that time. Considering how chaotic the landing was, they may, might not have been aware of the moon one way or the other. One possibility listed at the time of the movie's release was that it was blown up and formed a ring of smaller rocks and dust around the planet that would account for one of the astronauts saying, there's always a strange cloud cover at night. Blowing up the moon is no mean feat and would have likely changed the face of the Earth in any number of less than pleasant ways. I believe this was one of the ideas for the story to explain the state of the world, extreme desertification and the like, but was never covered in the dialogue. Well, you know, there is a line of dialogue that, that Taylor gives right toward the end of the movie where he speculates on why the planet looks the way it does. And he says something about uh, some natural disaster, uh, a shower of meteors. He says, you know, by the looks of some parts of this planet, blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, I mean, it, you piece all that together. And I had completely forgotten about the, I think it's Dodge that mentions the strange glow at night. So, hmm. yeah, it's possible. Well, but where this series, uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, yeah, because that's what takes place in here is that they are bombarded with 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 meteors. Um, the tides are changing, the waters tables dropping, um, and that's what kicks off this whole series. Is like the first two issues is basically how to survive the initial onslaught of of the changes, and then it goes on through the following issues. Um, Doctor Zayas actually goes to Doctor Milo. Who was imprisoned at the reef, which was introduced in the other series, where right. basically all the heretics are kept. Because right. basically, you know, basically he was imprisoned for his beliefs. But uh, Doctor Zayas actually brings Doctor Milo uh, instruments and books and and things to study and do his experiments on, even while he's in prison. And I brought everything to a halt. <laughs> uh, I was just listening. Well, it, it's also it's Milo that figures out that They're this doomed. isn't simply a matter of learning to live with it. That actually the Earth's not got much time left, which I thought was actually a really brilliant twist to go with in this because it tells you that it doesn't really matter in the long run that Taylor destroyed the world because the world was going to die anyway. Right. And I thought that that was interesting. Plus, it gives Milo a motivation for where he winds up in the last issue of the series. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because along the way, he's um, there's a couple issues that's a side story to where they're trying to find a, a valley of apes uh, called the Painted Valley. And it's kind of interesting what happens there because they appear to have this paradise up in the mountains and they uh um soon discover is it milo that actually goes up there though or was it another ape ah it's where i'm drawing to black it's isn't it milo and cornelius together i thought oh that's right? right that's right it is cornelius yes they go up there and find uh that these apes have a secret and what had happened was a few years prior uh, during an earthquake and i don't not not when the moon um was blown up but it had shifted their source of water, and now their source of water comes from the Forbidden Zone. And actually, uh, because they noticed that there was something wrong with the fruit. And, right. uh, you know, that there might be something wrong with the... What was that? Was that Paul laughing? No, no, uh, not at all. Uh, <laughs> Did you read so, this series, uh, Paul? I, I read the issue Bill's covering. I didn't read the entire series, but I really enjoyed the issue. Yeah, so they... 
they go into deep into to the mountain and find out that basically the water supply has been coming from like a cracked sewer pipe coming from the forbidden zone and that actually imprisoned or like cast off into the mountain are apes that have become mutants or i guess we could call them mapes and they have the mental powers of the mutants that are in the forbidden zone which is kind of a stretch because you know radiation i mean it's kind of quick how that happens am i misreading that or that's the way it seemed to me that it happened pretty much like within one generation and not not even that like the the one guy's daughter is one of the apes uh, uh the leader of of the village um in the painted valley uh like his daughter is one of the apes that lives in the cave so it just seems that this water was able to change them so so quickly but and then as they leave the painted valley they look back and they realize that this whole thing was an illusion kind of like the uh telosians from star trek they made them see that everything was actually beautiful but it wasn't um so they 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 take the tainted fruit back anyway which doesn't doesn't really become any um long-term oh my god nobody move paul's got a gun no sorry <laughs> um doesn't really have any long-term effects because well milo says basically in the long run it's not going to matter if this fruit's tainted or not and that's you know that's that's again cut coming back to the fact that you know they're not going to be around you know the, that everything isn't going to last that long um some other side stories are picked up with Alaron and other uh, characters from the other uh, miniseries, but I'm not going to really go into detail on that. But I'm now going to get to the last issue, which is issue 12, uh, Battle of the Apes Cataclysm. And we have a nice cover of what appears to be an ape in a chimp suit, but we'll find out that that's Dr. Milo. And um, we looks like Dr. Zaius beneath him and Cornelius and Zira. And behind him appears to be the Earth exploding. And in deep space, we see someone um, talking about the ship that he's in. And, you know, he doesn't really understand why the chronometers are different. And, and then he says it's rather moot all the way. And we see, aha, this is the last statement of Dr. Milo. And then we get a flashback to a few years prior to where he had been... Um, had gone to Dr. Zace again and saying, you know, this is this is what's going to happen. We we need to find a way to, to either reser- reverse this or do something. So he ends up going into the Forbidden Zone, discovers, you know, uh, books, stuff about uh, man. And then he stumbles upon our old friends. Praise be the bomb. We all show our voices to our God. And he is taken captive by the mutants. Because they are praying to our friend the Alpha and Omega. Because apparently there was two Alpha and Omega bombs. And uh, while he's in captivity, uh, he is. Uh, they they're trying to find ways to communicate with him. This 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 one particular woman, and she basically tells him that you know, this is where things start to come together because he finds out that there has been. Uh, that the mutants have all along this is what we were talking about before scott that you find out that the mutants all along have been trying to find ways to just kill the apes and in fact it was a mutant that actually set off the bomb in the first issue and there was Mm -hmm. another one that was disguised as the gorilla ursus if i'm uh remembering that correct yeah so she actually releases him because she says that there are members of the mutants that don't want 
I mean, you know, that don't want to see everything destroyed. So she actually is able to release him and then uh, presents an illusion upon herself that he beat her up so that there won't be any question as to how he got away. So he returns back to Ape City and that's when so this is actually five years later that he was on like a five-year journey during this time comes back and now taylor has arrived and the in talking with um zayas not zayas zira and cornelius uh has the map as to supposedly where the ship crashed and he goes and through a rather long and drawn out process he sits in a boat with a magnet <laughs> and goes in the lake back and forth until clunk and uh since obviously uh dr milo is the smartest ape in the, on this planet he's able to rig up a uh basically like a giant winch with some oxen and pulls the ship out of the water and uh suspension of disbelief on this one he's able big to go time. big time <laughs> yes he is able to figure out that he only needs one component to fix the ship Everything else, the life support, you know, everything else works. But, man, he just can't get that he needs, carburetor. He needs one AAA battery and it'll go. <laughs> right. So then, lo and behold, one night, woof, there's, a, there's a, a streak in the sky. And he goes over and, hey, look, there's another ship. And the one thing that's not damaged is the one piece of the puzzle that he needed to fix his ship. So he goes back and he readies it. And then... Um, um, he's all set and now all he needs is a crew and just as he says that there's an intense blast and um, what he's actually seeing though is a flash from the mutants as to what's been happening and we get basically a quick replay of the end scenes of Beneath the Planet of the Apes to with um, you know, all praise be the bomb and the apes running in and killing all the mutants and Dr. Zaius riding through the fire and you know the apes getting their way into the forbidden zone and then um also um as my dog attacks my cat um also uh in the distance he sees three chimps coming and it is cornelius and zira and this kind of explains how they were here at this time because a woman um who they thought was a chimpanzee came to us and then she took off her mask. And I think we have to say it's in through these books that we discovered that, uh, that yes, yes, indeed. I think something you guys mentioned in beneath the planet of the apes commentary, there is, they do know how to make latex masks. Right. There's one guy yeah. that sits in a factory that's that, that right. sits in his, in his little workshop and he's got all the masks and everything sitting around. So just dutifully painting them and putting hair on them and everything else. But anyway, that was back in one of the other issues. Go back and read it, folks. So anyway, Milo um, is there, and Zayas, is that not Zayas? Damn it, Cornelius and Zira. Basically, they start to hop in the ship, and um, Lucius is outside helping them get ready. But he gets blasted by a group of gorillas as as they come up. Poor piglet. And... <laughs> What'd you say? That's poor piglet. Aw. Yeah, I, so, know. I liked I liked Lucius. Yeah, so off in the distance, they see the mushroom cloud go up, which is the bomb, praise be the bomb, and basically it says, we have to go now and punch it, and whoosh, they are off, and we, we have a nice little shot of them rising off 
into the sky as the mushroom cloud of death spreads and some nice gorillas are incinerated and turned to bones and, and ash. And then they escape the Earth, and then in a Star Wars-like explosion, the Earth explodes in the distance, and they ride the shockwave. And then we're basically treated now to a replay uh, from their point of view to the beginning of uh, Escape from the Planet of the Apes as they crash land onto the um, ocean, or on, on the ocean, and then come up to the beach, take off their helmets, and you see I was wrong about the machine. Everyone, it seems, was wrong about the machine. It traveled through time much more than space. Are we doomed to repeat the same mistakes? Will these foolish humans destroy the world again, even with the knowledge we bring? Only time will tell. But I wouldn't put it past them. And that's the end of Cataclysm. It basically brings us full circle back around. Now, I was curious, Scott, and we talked about this before, how does this play into what you read with Conspiracy, the, the whole Boone um, books, and with the book that you read that was called Conspiracy of the Planet of the Apes? Was it another retelling of how Dr. Zayas found out what he knew or something different? You mean Dr. Milo? Well, both. Because did, didn't you say it – well, did, was it mainly concerned with Dr. Milo? It was the the three main characters in in that particular book were um, Landon, who was the guy, one of the astronauts, the one that in the movie, in the original movie, uh, the last time we see him is when he's lobotomized, mm -hmm. when Taylor turns him around and he's been lobotomized. Um, in an ape, uh, excuse me, a gorilla police chief, Marcus, I think is his name. His story I didn't think was particularly interesting. And the last character was uh, Dr. Milo. And see, I read this first before I read Conspiracy. Uh, I read this some time ago. And the funny thing is, is I was a huge fan of the first two minis. You know, you know you've got uh, Betrayal and um, Exile. Loved them. Thought they were awesome. And then um, I've, I found by the time this was coming out or had come out, I'd kind of stopped reading the the boom ape stuff. I, I just kind of it just kind of fell off my radar. So by the time I learned about it, the entire series was out. So I was able to sit down and read it in one fell swoop. And the thing with Cataclysm is it's not that it's bad or anything. It's that I think this would have been much better served to also be a four issue miniseries as opposed to a 12 issue maxi. Cause it feels very padded out to me. Yeah. There's I, I, like the whole thing with the mutant apes that does, that's like two or three issues and that yeah. really didn't need to be there. And it doesn't really do anything. So I was reading it, but as it dragged on, and I, I have to use that, I, I have to say it that way, I thought it really dragged. I was kind of losing interest. I'm so glad, though, that I stuck with it because this last issue, number 12, to me, redeemed the entire series because this is what I loved about the first two miniseries is getting a glimpse of things that were happening, you know, in the gutters or behind the scenes or whatever that, that answered questions I'd always had. 
And this was the probably the biggest question I ever had about anything to do with the Planet of the Apes films is how the hell did they wind up in that spaceship in the first place? Why were Zira and Cornelius in the spaceship? You know, even if you could buy the whole thing of Milo, you know, because they briefly explain in Escape how the ship was salvaged. You know, that Milo was a genius and he found it and he restored it and he understood it. But that still never addressed why Zira and Cornelius were in the ship. So this issue, I loved it because it was an explanation without being obvious about being an explanation. It was still part of the cataclysm narrative. It just happened to explain this great mystery. And I really liked that. Um, But to answer your question about how does it jibe with um, conspiracy, it kind of doesn't only in the sense that um, they don't heavily contradict each other, but they do a bit because in in conspiracy, Milo becomes interested in the ship because he strikes up a friendship with, um, with, Landon, with Landon and Landon tells him everything. And mm. Milo doesn't really believe Landon, but it's one of these things where in the book, Milo's obsessed with the idea of flight. He believes that apes can learn to fly and doesn't see and he doesn't believe in in there's there's a line in the original movie something about uh flight being you know the council has deemed that flight is a scientific impossibility and milo doesn't subscribe to that theory so when he learns that this human came to his planet with a flying machine he becomes kind of obsessed about the idea and even though he thinks landon's nuts he can't afford not to investigate. So he actually goes to the Forbidden Zone with a team who find the ship and salvage it. And the salvage in the book is much more believable than the one in this story. (laughs) That said, that's the only thing I like better in the book as opposed to this issue, is that this issue, the actual salvage of the ship, and I'm talking just the dragging it out of the water, you know, how he finds it with the magnet and dragging it out of the water doesn't really work for me, even with all of the disbelief that I've got to suspend with talking apes and everything else. This one was a bridge too far. But you turn the page to the shot where he has the thing up on a Derek and he's working on the ship. And it's very like star Wars in that panel. It looks like it's almost like the pod racer sequence. You know what I mean? It's, Mm -hmm. I just love the look of how the ship is all set up and he's working on it. You know, you guys made fun of, you know, there's only one piece that doesn't work, but that's not really true. I mean, he, he, it shows him, working on the ship and there's a line of dialogue about, you know, whatever didn't work, I had to figure out how to fix it. Um, But essentially, yes, it does come down to, he's able to fix everything except this one piece that no matter what he does, there's no suitable replacement. And this is the other thing that made me love the issue was that the writer remembered, Hey, there were two ships. And so he actually ties in Brent's ship 
which mm-hmm. actually was less damaged in in a certain way because it, it was never waterlogged like like Taylor's right. was. So he goes to that ship, finds his piece, is able to restore the ship, and then we're given sort of a half-assed explanation for why Zira and Cornelius uh, showed up because they they were basically sent there by the mutants. By, right, by one of the good mutants. Yeah, and so I liked that. I, I loved this entire issue the the whole issue just made the series work for me i really liked it the only other quibble i had and it's a minor one because i can easily forgive it is that once they leave the planet um the sequence do not jibe with the comic book adaptation and the script as it exists of how the movie was supposed to start until they scrapped that opening and went to, with the opening that we actually see in the movie that is in existence. But that's a minor quibble. Um, I really enjoyed the issue quite a bit. I hope I answered your questions about conspiracy without giving too much away because, you see, conspiracy essentially ends once Milo finds the ship. And oh. that's why, ultimately, as much as I really enjoyed the book, I was let down by it because having read this... And realizing that, of course, there were going to be differences between the two, I wanted to see what the book would say about Milo's salvaging of the of the ship and why Zirin Cornelius wound up in it. It it doesn't do any of that. It basically the book ends when he salvages the ship. You don't you don't get any further story, and that's why I still love this issue right here. This is probably my favorite issue of Apes. Um, uh, of any of the apes comics that have come along because this is just bridging into my, you know, my second favorite era of, of the movies. You know, I love the first movie. I love the third movie and, and finally getting this explanation was so satisfying. I really enjoyed it. I, I love the art and, uh, and I love the way it was told from, uh, from Milo's perspective. And it makes it that much sadder when you remember that uh, Milo's got you know minutes to live once they yeah. actually make it to Earth too, which is easy to forget as you're reading this issue and really coming to like his character because he's a very likable guy. And well, then you well, get through to the, the whole end. twelve issues. I mean, he's really you know. Yeah. Well, I don't. No, he's not. He doesn't show up. I think until a couple issues in. Right. Um, when he gets freed from the reef. But 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 yeah, I mean, you, you, I kind of feel like I have a kind of like a twin in the opening shot of him sitting in the ship. He looks so uh, like beaten down and just, you yeah. know, exhausted. Yeah. yeah. So we can relate to him. Right. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But I think they should change his name from Dr. Milo to Dr. MacGyver. <laughs> I do love that shot, though, because the the first page mirrors the beginning of the original Planet of the Apes. We've got this ship right. drifting through space and we've got the the commander's thoughts and the the shots as we go inside the ship, the shot of the chronometer and the back of the commander's head. It's all yeah. perfectly mirroring the first movie. And then you flip the page and you've got the dead on shot of the commander and you realize it ain't Charlton Heston. It's a no. monkey. And that's pretty cool. That's just a great visual. Even his really body good. language. They, they get not... offended when you call them monkeys. 
But that I love that. I thought yeah. that was really genius. Yeah, I I really really like the fact that they flesh out Milo, who really never becomes a character. And you know, in, in Escape from the Planet of the Apes, he's just there. He's a plot device. He really isn't a character in right. the movie. And and this this really does give him some depth and and make you uh, you know make you understand. Uh, well, it makes you think how he is and how different could the story have been if he had lived in Escape from the Planet of the Apes? Right. Uh, no. I don't think it would have been well, much different yeah. because I think he he if anything would have scared the. Uh, the humans even more because, but maybe he, he had the wherewithal through. to uh, to to put into play the plans to take over if uh, you know because of his intelligence. Not that the other two weren't intelligent. Well, no, but he maybe could have kept them to get, keep their mouth shut. See, I love playing with the what ifs. You know that that's one of the things I really enjoy about you know any great science fiction story is playing with the what ifs and i think escape has some of the best what ifs of the entire series because it's not so much what if he had lived is what if they just listened to him because he has very little dialogue in escape i mean you know spoiler he he dies like 15 minutes into the film but if you listen to the dialogue he gives, everything he says, he's right. If if Zira had just kept her friggin' mouth shut, it Bitch. probably wouldn't have gone so badly for them. But the moment she opened her mouth, she signed the death warrant for all three of them. And so at that point, it doesn't make any difference really whether Milo lives or dies, which is a shame. But it would be interesting to see like a what if story where they take his advice and they do keep their mouth shut and and see, you know, run that direction. The other uh, what if that uh, I thought would be really interesting, and I think I brought this up on uh, on one of the Two True Freaks episodes that we did covering the movies, is what if you replace one of the three of them uh, and really the only one that really works would be Milo. What if instead of it being Dr. Milo, it was Dr. Zaius that returned to 1973 Earth? I think that would be a really interesting story. Well, that was now, they kind of played on that in the uh, Mr. Comics in one of the short after stories, uh, if you recall. And we touched on it last week, so I don't want to go too much in depth. But it's kind of the Dr. Zaius knows what's going to happen because of the sacred scrolls and because of right. the things he learned. And he decides he's going to basically assassinate Milo. Right. To prevent and, and, then, and then Milo says, look, all these scrolls are about you. What? And then yes. he wakes up from the dream. Basically saying, you know, the time is going to play out. No matter, you know, the same way, no matter what happens. Right. So, uh, I mean, at least that was that one take on it was the what if still is that time is still going to lead you to its inevitable uh, conclusion, which will not change. I liked that story because to me, it sort of addressed uh, the question that I've heard raised before is that is apes a self-fulfilling prophecy or does escape establish a an alternate timeline? And I like to think it's the former rather than the latter. That that you know it's it's kind of like in the original Terminator that after everything is said and done, this was all meant to happen. Mm-hmm. I kind of see apes the same way. Although I do have trouble reconciling uh, reconciling battle with the original film, I still think that ultimately 
it's you know it's a it's a self-fulfilling prophecy you know self-sustaining cycle whatever you want to say as opposed to you know these actions here by by them coming back in time has somehow changed everything i i i never really liked that idea you know i'm glad you brought a i got a side story when we're when when we're done discussing the book the an ape story that uh i didn't tell you guys before but uh but uh so for grades on the book um I I say the story's an A, and and this art has been the same throughout the series. Uh, I believe it's the same artist that was in... Yeah, it's written by Karina Becco. So, yeah, that's the same person that did the other two ones. So, yeah, they it's the same the same creative team that we'd seen before. And now the cover to the... Well, I explained the cover. I, I like the cover. I also really like the cover to the first one. Yeah. Um, that one was pretty cool because that had, of course, and now I'm jumping back to the other book. A bunch of the covers on these were actually by Alex Ross. This one for 12, at least the one I'm looking at, is not by him, but I love it. Yeah, there's the the cover for one is like a, it's got a shot of the moon and then there's uh, the Alpha Omega bomb going off. But it's like cut into three different panels. It's, it's just right, really, there's a lot yeah. of action on it. But but anyway, back to the book that we're directly covering. Um, I give the cover like a B plus, and the interior art like on the other ones, a B plus to an A minus, and the story is just a straight up A for me. There's there's no you know, even the ads are fantastic. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, remember remember when I said I saved the A's for the really superlative ones that that you know just a really good story isn't enough. It has to be Better than that. And this is where you're going to say, this ain't it? I'm giving this an A. Ah, okay. I think this is an excellent story. I think it's an excellent play on on using the character that, that we know but hasn't been fleshed out, fleshing him out, fleshing out his story, giving us a meaningful story arc for uh, what goes on in the movies without retconning it at all to speak mm-hmm. of. Uh, it, it, it has some major moments. I was very sad when Lucius died. Yeah, uh, I, I I give the story an A. I give the art a B. I think the art is solid. It's good. It's good storytelling. It's well paced, uh, but it's not. You know, it's not that top top of the line art. It's just very good art. So I'm giving it a B, uh, and I give the cover. I give the cover a B plus. I think the cover is very good. I think it it gives you a clue as to what the story is, and yet it's kind of a poster image at the same time. Uh, and it, it's nice, cleanly drawn. The coloring is is moody on it. I, I really like the cover. Before you give your grade, Scott, I got one nit, nitpick, and I want to see what you think about this. Getting to this book, this last issue, all right, we had 12 issues. Does it seem, did they want to make this a regular, ongoing book? Because it seems almost like this this last issue is rushed. Like, it came out of nowhere. Like, we jumped right to this. Because there was other things still going on. At least, uh, I mean, they had kind of wrapped things up. But, uh, I don't know. Do you do you get that feeling? Or is it just my own interpretation of that? Hmm. My understanding is that this was supposed to be an ongoing. That this replaced the Planet of the Apes ongoing. 
Is that right? That's that's the way I heard it, and I'm sticking huh. with it. Yeah, because so, I mean, because because we get five years compressed in just a handful of pa- in like five pages. So you're saying that this was not intended to be a twelve issue maxi at all? That it just happened to end at number twelve? That's the way I understand it. That's an interesting. I had not. I hadn't thought of that, or I hadn't heard of that. That's a very interesting uh, idea. That might actually play in a little bit to why this issue feels the way it does then. But, I mean, if that is true, then kudos to them for a very satisfactory and satisfying conclude. you know, wrapping the whole thing up in the last issue because... You know, as we've seen when this has happened before in comic books, that's not usually the case. Like the last issue of, say, Marvel Star Wars, for example, not a very satisfactory or satisfying ending. It just kind of says, eh, we got to wrap this shit up because we got canceled. And that's exactly what it feels like. Whereas this, I I thought this was the natural conclusion of a 12 issue maxi. So totally works for me. Um, but yeah, that's an interesting question. I, I don't I don't know the answer to that. Interestingly, we have to wrap up Planet of the Apes month, whether we were ready to or not, <laughs> even though we planned on making it an ongoing. <laughs> Maybe you planned on making it an ongoing. <laughs> yeah, because it almost reminded me of like the 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 final season of um, the Josh Whedon show Angel. I don't know if you guys ever watched that, but they they basically had storylines going, and they came back and said. All right, you got one season. Let's wrap it up, and everything kind of got fast. You know, everything went into fast forward, and boom, 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 and they were done. Right, and that, yeah, that's kind of like what happens in this issue. It's like everything else. We had these like two or three issue story arcs. We had the Painted Valley. We had the stuff with Alaron coming back. Um, the plot that Ursus was an actual mutant. The mutants pulling the strings, and bam, we're done. Right. So. I guess I'll yeah. do my quick. I remember them story. doing. Oh, go ahead. So I guess this could be a real, real, real life ape talk with Doctor Bill Robinson. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for real life ape talk with Doctor Bill Robinson. So when I worked for Simplex Grinnell, on one occasion they sent me out to lovely Burbank, California, for a school all the way from Florida. So I flew out there and uh, taking one of the airport taxis. Um, there was a little old lady there, and, and she said, uh, do you mind if I get dropped off first? I, I was in no hurry. I was going to be out there for for a, a week, and it was a Saturday. And I was like, no, sure, I'll just, you know, enjoy the drive. So we dropped off a few people, and then we, we came to where she was staying. And I had talked to her a little bit during the, the drive, and, and she, she had actually worked in the movie business as like a secretary and where she was staying was like they had their own private um not like assistant living but like their own retirement community so we pull in to the drive and in the center of like the main main driveway there's a statue of the lawgiver (laughs) i'm just looking at it going isn't that she's like oh yes that's one of the replicas from 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 the movie yeah there was a there was a uh, uh we had a ceremony here and mr mcdowell was here when he brought it you know it's like wow so 
So yeah, that's uh, that's my that's my ape story, my touch with apeness. Thank you so much for listening to our show. <laughs> that was beautiful, Bill. Yeah. Okay. Wrote a tear to my I... eye. You sure the dog didn't, you know, like poke you or something with his paw? I didn't, <laughs> I didn't say it was a tear of joy. Oh, sorry. I accidentally poked myself in the eye. <laughs> Somebody that actually was slicing. I'm sorry uh, slicing if my. An onion. I'm so, sorry if my ape story wasn't as uh, uplifting or, uh, you know, I just thought it was cool that there was a statue of the lawgiver there. I think it's wonderfully cool. <laughs> I should have hopped down and got a but, picture with it, but I didn't. Damn. There was the, thrown the, in the uh, trunk of the car. Scott, another <laughs> point that I just wanted to bring up with you, just because Bill and I talked about it last week, but you weren't here. Uh, in one of the stories in the Mr. Comics series, they go, they basically show that each tribe has its own lawgiver, which up until I read that, I was always under the impression there was one lawgiver in history, and that was it. I'm curious as to your take on that. Yeah, but that yeah. was one of those. That was one of the backstories that they yes. were all kind of out there, like you know, like like that. I kind of took those. Now thinking about it, kind of like some of them other freaky stories in the Marvel books, the you know, apes in white satin, you know, knights in white satin, you know, <laughs> fighting apes in white satin. Ah, see, we couldn't go show. Right into Days of Future Past. Uh. Oh, Let's not go down that road hater. again. I forgot. <laughs> Build a hater. But I'm it. But I'm ready for Guardians. I'm I'm ready for a talking raccoon to make me laugh, make me cry, make me kiss twenty bucks goodbye. <laughs> All right. What do you say we wrap it up? Do Any it. closing thoughts? Day. I will miss the apes. Well, I guess we will have. At least one more opportunity to revisit the apes when the movie comes out and we do our roundtable. Mm, yeah. And and as I was saying to you guys before we actually started the show, uh, I'm not necessarily packing away the apes books and calling an end to them. Uh, I could, in a uh, when we do regular format shows, I could pull out an ape book every now and again. So I, I enjoy them too much to just say that's it forever. So does this mean we're going to have an obligatory... Uh coattail writing planet of the apes show no i think i think planet <laughs> of the apes month serves that purpose already yeah so well i just want to say thank you scott for uh turning uh well that's probably a poor choice of words well, turning me on to the apes <laughs> <laughs> i'm glad i can turn you on bill <laughs> well it's nice that something can oh where's mrs robinson jolton joe has left and gone away <laughs> Hey, hey, hey.
chirp, chirp, cricket, cricket. <laughs> so this Paul guy, what do you think? We can get rid of him, right? Ah, oh, man, he's he's like he's he he's ingrained himself like a some type of bacteria or something. <sighs> you got to root him out. His freaking ego is what kills me, man. How does he even how does he even get out of that room? His head's got to be so big by now. I think his head's the size of that bobblehead picture he had. <laughs> Of, of him as Joey Fatone. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by visiting the Two True Freaks section of www.forumforgeeks.com. Back to the Bins is produced in association with the Two True Freaks podcast, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com and is a registered trademark of Demanzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Back to the Bins is a proud member of both the League of Comic Book Podcasts, which you may find at comicbooknoise.com league, and also the Comics Podcast Network, which you may find at comicspodcasts.com. Take a moment to stop by their respective sites and support their other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week. 